I went into science, to science because I, you know, crave truth and certainty and beauty, blah, blah, blah. So this is a little bit like becoming an archbishop in order to meet women. And at one point, you know, he he held like a tiny little fundraiser uh, for his pod, not his podcast, but for his, you know, the Unqualified Reservations blog. And I got back an email from a guy named Curtis Yarvin. And I was like, oh, that we should only touch these institutions that are living, organic, breathing instantiations of generations of our wisdom. Um, we should only tear them down if we're darn sure we know why they were put up and we understand that there were probably good reasons why they were put up, but for some reason, you know, those new reasons are, are no longer being served. Well, the thinking is overrated. Hi, hi, welcome, welcome. This is the From the New World podcast. Today I'm speaking with Jeremy Carl. Jeremy is a senior fellow at the Claremont Institute writer and builder in early Silicon Valley, contributor to many, many publications, and Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Interior in the Trump administration. It was a fascinating conversation, and probably one of the widest, if not the widest, I've had on this show. We talk about everywhere from early Silicon Valley to the dissident right, to lockdown policy, to serving in the Trump administration, to immigration, and all the way back to Godel Escher Bach an incredibly interesting book that you'll see very soon. <laughs> and through all this, I think we approach it with a kind of not just open-mindedness, but seeking to actually get to the truth of things that I really haven't seen, especially in the kind of later podcast environment. And I, I spoke very recently and basically said that I'm at the point where every single podcast I do for the last maybe entire season or entire season and a half has been just exhilarating, has just been a wonderful experience for myself. And hopefully it will be for you too. As always, you can find Jeremy's information in the episode description. And if you want to help the show, you can do so by sharing it on social media or in person. After all, there are a lot of people who are just like you who have the same interests, who have never heard of the show. And not only are you helping us, but you're also helping that person too. And if you can do that, then thank you. Without further ado, here's Jeremy Carl. So the first thing that I'd like to ask is, a lot of people who listen to the show like the book, uh, Seeing Like a State, do you think it's overrated or underrated? Underrated. Uh, and I'd say the, the primary reason it's underrated is um, just that not enough people know about or are really familiar with its its arguments, not maybe that uh, within the political science community that uh, it's underrated, although I think there are folks like David Layton at Stanford, who's been, uh, who I studied under for a bit, uh, who've been a little too critical of it. But um, overall, I'd say underrated. Right. And you've had such an interesting background. I go more in this in the intro but you've seen a lot of dimensions of America. You worked in the Trump White House, you, but you also were uh, at the early kind of Silicon Valley uh, yeah. phase when it was still when it was still Silicon Valley and very many of these dimensions. And I think that in a lot of cases, people look 
in from the outside. And I do this too, right? I have my own assumptions and look into each of these places and come away with false assumptions. So I kind of just want to ask, what is the biggest false assumption that people had about uh, Silicon Valley, especially early Silicon Valley? What, we, the biggest assumption they have now that's wrong or the biggest assumption they had in the early days that was wrong? Mm, that's a good question. Uh, I was originally intending to ask now, but I'd like to hear both if uh, you okay. want to speak on them. Sure. Well, let's see. So now I think um, if they're certainly looking about the early days of Silicon Valley, um, I'd say to the extent that folks sort of thought, well, it was all a scam from the beginning uh, at some level, or it was all sort of destined to wind up where we wound up uh, from the beginning, I think that's wrong. Um the kind of converse, um, which I sort of experienced firsthand, was uh, true of the the folks who were at the beginning. And just to kind of sketch that out, I mean, I've written a, a long piece for this uh, for Return, which it sounds like you've read, called Web 1.0, where I, yes. I sort of recount my own experiences. But um, just, you know, for the benefit of, of your audience members who, who have not read that uh, piece, um, you know, I started out, I got involved uh, in the web because I'm of a little bit of an older generation than you. Uh, I was a student undergrad at Yale in the uh, early to mid 90s. I got on the web uh, in 1993 when there were probably fewer than 100 websites in existence. And I kind of, uh, for a variety of ways, ended up riding that rocket ship uh, during the earliest days of, of the web. I mean, really, I kind of joined the industry before the industry really existed. Um, and uh, kind of went f- uh, from that uh, until the initial crash uh, of uh, 2000 and then kind of uh, got off and did other things. But I think the kind of the misconception we had at the time, of course, was that, and this may have reflected to extent the, the youth of folks like me who were involved. I mean, it was a ridiculously uh, young industry at the time, even sort of establishment folks in Silicon Valley uh, were not really a part of it. I mean, Bill Gates kind of dismissed it for a long time. I mean, just to give you a sense of sort of the, the institutional you know, kind of pushback we had against it. But um, I think we thought like a lot of young people, it's like, hey, we're going to go change the world and the web will change the world. And it's going to be this place that that uh, is immune to censorship. Um, and you can kind of read these sort of grandiose statements from the Electronic Frontier Foundation and other folks uh, at the time. And in fact, it turned out that um, not only was that not fully the case, even though there's no question that the web had absolutely, uh, it did have revolutionary uh, impact on our technologies and societies, and it did open up the door um, for a lot of new voices uh, to emerge that could have never emerged in our sort of more uh, straitjacketed media landscape. Um, That having been said, A, uh, the ability of states, and you look at, at a place like China, um, to control uh, the web turns out to be a lot higher than we would have thought uh, back in the early days. There was a famous saying for the Electronic Frontier Foundation, the internet uh, looks as censorship as damage and routes around it. Uh, and that is not, again, it's not totally false, but it turned out to be not nearly as true as we would have liked it uh, to have been at the time. Uh, and then I'd say the other thing that we really missed that's kind of even more insidious is that we didn't see how the internet could be spun around and all the things that kind of make it wonderful, this ability to communicate, the transparency, the ability to at least have sort of putative anonymity, anonymity rather, um, 
could actually be spun back around and be used as methods of even greater centralized social control of greater punishment of uh, folks who deviate from the party line of greater ability to oppress than we even had in the pre-internet days. And I think as particularly as state actors get more sophisticated about the web and as our um, privacy gets more and more implicated as we lead more and more of our lives online, that becomes just a much, much greater um, danger than I think the vast majority of us saw in the early to mid nineties. Really? That's interesting. You see, you see this as on net, uh, a greater, uh, a greater tool for surveillance as opposed to just people uh, living in their ordinary lives. Well, I, I wouldn't say that. I mean, I was, I, I, I would not make, that's a much stronger claim and I wouldn't go that far. Because I okay. think that there's all sorts of people who are living for their ordinary lives who are not challenging the state in whatever weird way. And, um, you know, for those folks, uh, you know, I can meet uh, my lesbian basket weaver, you know, meetup on, online. And now I have these communities and I have access to them that I never would have had, you know, living, I live in Montana, right? So I, I don't run a lot of people, period, but uh, not not certainly living in whatever local community and meat space uh, that I happen to live in. And so in that sense, it's a revolutionary positive force on all of those dimensions. But when you begin to challenge the state, again, there are some definite positives and there are ways that we've used the internet to overcome state censorship, to do all sorts of other things. But it's also can be used as a, you know, a kind of mode of, um, you know, kind of controlling dissidents, um, of controlling dialogue. I mean, I think about Twitter right now, and it gives the illusion, and similarly, even with Google search, although it's not as extreme, it gets the illusion that when I search Twitter, I'm seeing like what's out there, whereas what I'm really seeing is a curated space of what the folks at Twitter um, uh, want me to see. And as somebody who's had my account throttled quite frequently at Twitter, uh, shameless plug uh, at Jeremy Carl for, uh, but as somebody who's had my account uh, throttled quite frequently by Twitter for various forms of wrong think, uh, I am very acutely aware of that. But I think that I still, when I open it up, I kind of feel like I'm getting this uh, sense of reality, whereas in fact, I'm getting a corporate uh, or eventually, in, in some cases, a state-controlled uh, version of what they want me to see. Okay, I see this. Okay, I think I understand the argument a lot more now, right? It's a kind of it's a kind of brave new world argument, right? I, I think I push back very frequently on a different type of argument, and I don't think this is the one you're making, where people just talk about the the sheer power of the state, even a pow- the power of a state like China. I think is diminished compared to the pre-internet era where literally if you were to send a letter, right, you can literally have, you literally cannot send a letter across any kind of reasonable amount of distance without it passing through basically anyone who would want to, who, who would want to uh, administrate some kind of central surveillance on it. Right. Sure. So you had this, you had, you had this like prior era where I think, Due to due to more physical constraints, right? 
the power to organize, the power to communicate without sure. passing through some sort of center uh, was was actually much lower. Uh, of course, this doesn't mean that that power is not existent now, but yeah. I think like you you just look at past revolutions, past dissident movements. To me, it's a lot. To me, it's just such an impressive feat and something that requires so much organization and dedication that I kind of want to see today, right? And yeah. I kind of believe in human pot- potential today that I-, I like to make the optimistic case. I like to, as the young people say nowadays, the white pill for yeah. for anyone who wants to be a dissident. I, I do think it's a- an easier time to be a dissident than uh, in many eras in the past where dissidents have won. <laughs> Yeah, no, in many cases, and I am not in any way blackpilled overall. I mean, I'm maybe somewhat blackpilled awesome. on the United States, <laughs> oh. uh, but I'm not blackpilled mm-hmm. on kind of the future of us in the in the broader sense winning. Um, I think what you're saying about dissidents and, and time to be dissident um, is certainly true. I mean, I traveled pretty extensively in China in what wasn't, it wasn't quite the total pre-internet age, but it was was functionally pretty much the pre-internet age. I mean, internet was very limited. This was late 1990s uh, in China. Um, And, you know, there were ways in which um, you were uh, more under the power of the state there, but there were also ways that were less. I would say that that a network, if you kind of look at it in a morally neutral way, um, you know, it can be, it can either expand freedom or it can contract it dramatically because, at the same time, you know, if, if they roll up the opposition and the opposition is all on some Discord chat, right, and they suddenly discover everybody's real IDs and locations, it's actually a much more effective method of state control. But on the other hand, that Discord chat gives those folks a method to organize in a much more um, uh, comprehensive way than they would have previously. You know, my parents helped out Soviet dissidents in a little bit in the late 60s and 70s. And they were sort of, when they w- went to the Soviet Union a couple times, you know, they were they were tailed by various folks. And so things were more crude, you know, at the same time, again, when we look at, at dissident movements, and I think this kind of talks, you know, kind of more more proudly to the, or more directly to the kind of entire notion of, of a network, um, uh, you know, communist cells, the whole point was that you could never give away too many people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they were organized that way because it, it speaks to kind of both the power and risks of a network. So on the one hand, they were more isolated. Uh, on the other hand, there was less risk to any one point, whereas now we've had conscious cases where entire 50,000 person mailing lists of some dissident group um, were, were leaked, you know, with people's personal contact information. And so I'd say that there's there's more reward, there's more possibility, but there's also more risk. And I think that dissidents are just beginning to get more sophisticated about personal security. And I, I say that I'm obviously, you know, a face fag, as they say. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm out there under my own name and that has its um, uh, negatives and positives. But I definitely know among sort of more online dissidents, um, it can be, uh, I mean, that's an issue. I'll just give you an example. I mean, with, and I don't think he'll mind me telling the story just to give you a sense. So uh, before Curtis was Curtis, uh, Curtis Yarvin, I know he's been on your podcast a couple times, it looks like. 
Um, yes, uh, he's know. been on my podcast once, but yeah, I think my my listeners are familiar with him. Yeah, but um, Curtis, um, before he was Curtis, he was Mencius Moldbug, and uh, that was when I started reading him uh, well more than a decade ago. Um, and a, at one point, you know, he he held like a tiny little fundraiser uh, for his pod, not his podcast, but for his, you know, the unqualified reservations blog, he asked basically for some babysitting money. I wrote him, I said, Hey, I don't agree with everything you write, but you're really, really interesting guy. You know, I sent him a few bucks and I got back an email from a guy named Curtis Yarvin. And I was like, Oh, um, but I mean, that was how <laughs> unseriously, even a guy like Curtis, who was engaging in really dangerous dissident thought in many ways, uh, at the time took OPSEC, you know, it's like all I needed to do is to figure out who this guy was, was like write Mencius Moldbug at his, uh, you know, like email me thing. And then you get a, a an email back from the real ID. And I asked Curtis about that at one point many years later. And he's sort of like, well, yeah, I never really thought it would turn into anything. But again, I think it just speaks to how casual and Curtis and I are exactly the same age. We kind of actually grew up with kind of similar experiences of the early web, although he's certainly a much uh, brighter and more technical guy than I will ever be. Um, and, you know, we just didn't think in these ways naturally. And I think maybe younger people um, who kind of see that the internet is forever will hopefully be a little more sophisticated than we were about identity and anonymity and, and the risks involved therein. Right. Something that's always been quite interesting to me I think I talked to all the way at the very beginning of the podcast, I talked with Richard Hanania a little bit about this and I've talked to him subsequently about this uh, later on is that there are certain things that the regime seems kind of like hyper focused on policing and basically like destroying the careers of people who talk about. And then there are things that are like actually destabilizing actually like not destabilizing in a kind of violent sense but actually destabilizing in terms of changing voters opinions actually winning actually passing laws like the kind of stuff that Richard Hanania works on right sure. uh, the the civil rights stuff where it's like technical to an extent that they don't really care about it in the same way right so so do you have a kind of like estimator function for how yeah. how likely people are to or how, how likely kind of um either journalists, um, government officials, et cetera, are really likely to actually pile on to some kind of issue? Yeah, I mean, I don't know that I have any scientific uh, or, or mathematical formula that I I used to determine this. I'd say probably one way that I um, am maybe most distinct from a, a lot of people just in political movements generally is uh, that I have a lot of uh, epistemic modesty. Uh, which is to say, you know, I'm very aware of of how much I don't know, and and even more, uh, how much is not really knowable. Um, uh, and there are a lot of people here who will tell you that they have all the answers, uh, and I am certainly uh, not one of them. I mean, Richard uh, is, you know, he's a really really bright guy. He's put out, I think, you know, some pretty compelling arguments in this space about that. Um, you know, I, where I might counter Richard is if his work, which has definitely gotten out to a lot of people, but if it began to have, you know, 10x or 100x the level of influence that it does right now to the point that it really began moving the needle, 
um, in, a, in a really dramatic way on the public debate, he might find suddenly that what he thought was sort of esoteric and beneath the Borg's notice, uh, in fact, uh, the dragon smog to uh, switch metaphors is now uh, t- turned its uh, fiery breath, uh, you know, in his direction. Um, and, you know, just to give you a trivial example of this and maybe, you know, this notion that maybe it's not so easy always to work inside the system. And, and this is, I'm telling, uh, calling inside baseball here, but I feel confident that the people uh, creating difficulty are probably not going to listen uh, to this conversation. Um, <laughs> I uh, have been kind of put forward as a member of the uh, advisory board for the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights for my state. Um, and uh, so that kind of nomination is is pending. Um and you might think, ah, and this is, I mean, I'm basically doing this under a Hanania-esque theory of the case, which is to say, hey, there's a bunch of stuff that we can do kind of behind the scenes that's a little bit esoteric where we can move the ball forward in some very useful and valuable ways um, and the eye of Sauron will not fall on us. And in fact, what's happened is uh, the eye of Sauron in the name of the Democratic commissioners has fallen on me. And they are objecting vociferously to my appointment. And to their credit, um, the Republican commissioners have been uh, just as vociferous in uh, championing my appointment. And so right now we're at a stalemate for appointing the entire board. Uh, And I don't know how that will play out, but I simply tell that story in a way of saying that I think... um, you know, the, the the dragon scales are in more places than you might uh, think they are. And the little vulnerable uh, patch of skin that you can fire the arrow is a little bit smaller than it may look uh, from a distance when you're just writing about it. Yeah, I think that's right. And where, where I think it's right is that basically... The, the costs are applied at this kind of like social level, right? This is something that Balaji Srinivasan really gets right, I think, is that the attacks are always based on like your proximity to their social network, basically. Mm. So if they have like a friend yes. of a friend who yes. is like convinced by this, right? This is why you see like so much more, uh, so much more attacks on the kind of like, intellectual dark web types right the yes. Barry Weisses it's it, it's based on it, it's based on like closeness to the point where if you're like right. Curtis Yarvin and you know like anyone who's friends with Curtis Yarvin they're gonna be like all, off the map to the point where like right. anyone who's friends with them is not going to be friends with like a Vox journalist or something like that right there's so many degrees of separation here but if you but one of the aggregators, right? One of the aggregators for those environments is like DC or is like politics yeah. in general, right? I, the state government. Uh, I don't know what exactly um, this board is attached to, right? But I, was, I assume it's a, somewhat attached to the government, right? So, yeah. so when you kind of get close to power, you like trigger this, you, you trigger this kind of like network, network effect or network yeah. uh, aggregation. Yeah, I mean, that's a really uh, smart observation of Balaji's. I, I hadn't heard him uh, make that, and I appreciate you bringing it to my attention. I think there's there's a lot of truth in it. Um, what I'd say, and maybe, you know, I, I'm sort of in this liminal space in that regard, in that I spent um, 20 years uh, at Harvard, Yale, and Stanford. And so I know a lot of people who are in these elite environments that are kind of, 
a degree of separation from, you know, the people they're talking to. And at times I've even been one of the way people they've been talking to, but at the same time, I've kind of been involved and I've been involved with some very, very establishment figures in the conservative movement. I even say they're conservatives in some cases, but, but Republicans, uh, if you will, some very, you know, hyper respectable individuals. Um, um, but uh, at the same time, I've kind of been enough of a, a dissident figure in terms of some of my writing and, and some of these other things that I'm a little bit, some of those attacks get a little bit off the radar that I make these days um, in a way that they might not have even when I was sort of more in the core of that world 10, 20 years ago, you know, but at the same time, like folks from my Yale class, you know, have heard about my wrong think. And I, you know, I kind of hear secondhand, um, oh yeah, you know, so-and-so is not going to talk to you. Or in fact, I just noticed that somebody won't talk to me because of various uh, heresies that I've committed. Um, and so I do think that, that it, you know, in the particular space I set, I'm kind of in the peripheral vision of, uh, of Sauron, but maybe uh, not directly under the eye. But I'll tell you, you know, when you get to DC, you're directly under the eye. And I had a lot of hit pieces written on me as soon as I went into the Department of the Interior in a way that I didn't even when I was a Hoover Fellow, which is a entirely sort of respectable and in theory, um, you know, fairly prominent uh, position, at least in the conservative world for a decade. Uh, you know, suddenly the stuff that I'd said or written that was not particularly interesting uh, suddenly became the subject of a Washington Post or a Huffington Post hit piece. Um, and so I think that that what Balaji is saying there is is very accurate. And even Curtis, you know, kind of has that to a degree because hey, he's inside uh, the kind of good standing of the elite tech world. And he's also he's an Ivy League grad. You know, he knows all those guys. And, uh, you know, so he I'm sure has gotten uh, some of that as his prominence has increased. Yeah, to me, what's underrated and the ultimate payoff of this is that I think more people should become like face posters, right? People who, who speak in real life and leverage their kind of own personal network and personal like connection, right? People who like know who they are and who can develop that kind of either like direct social relationship or even some kind of parasocial relationship, I think is better than nothing where the opportunities that, that you get from being, and I don't, and here's where I think like using the word dissident might be like actually going a little bit too far is like not in, not in the terms of like, obviously the ideas you're saying are like dissident ideas, but like, yeah. I don't think this, this trade-off would have been the same for say like a dissident in the Soviet union. Right. But as, as like someone who has like dissident ideas today, I think that just like the amount that you gain, the, the, the friendships of the people who, or around you who admit their actual true political beliefs to you of the amount of just interesting connections and conversations and events. And I mean like my own, my own kind of career, quote unquote career uh, trajectory. Right. I, I think that it, the, the upside is not to be underestimated. There, there's so much to be gained from here. Um, I think that's absolutely correct. And, and you're totally right to, identify functionally as as a little bit precious for lack of a better term um the notion that you know somebody like me or even folks who are more dissidenty than me would call themselves dissidents 
um, because the um, the sort of price that I've paid for uh, some of the views that I've held or expressed, um, while in no way trivial, is just it is trivial compared to um, you know what uh, an anti-Soviet um, dissident would have uh, experienced, or to say even more on point, if you were say an anti Kim Jong Un dissident in North Korea today, it's really trivial. Um, and I'd add also, I think the importance. I mean, I some of my best friends are Anons, uh, but <laughs> I think there is no substitute, and this is ultimately why I've chosen. And in fact, I've written almost. Uh, I'll, I'll confess, just to uh, I can disabuse anybody else of conspiracy theories involving me, I've written almost nothing as an Anon ever. Um, I've always put my face behind what I think, because um, even when it's edgy, I think it's very important to um, to say, hey, you know, there's actually nothing wrong with this viewpoint. I'm going to put it out there. I'm not ashamed of putting it out under my own name and to really own that. And I think that, that gives people uh, who believe what you believe, it gives them some strength and courage, hopefully, in a way that when you're doing the same thing, even if it's twice as edgy as an Anon, when somebody reads it and it's like, uh, you know, respected frog 37 is saying this, it immediately <laughs> um, sets up this kind of tension where, oh, you know, to actually have this view is somehow bad. You know, it's somehow dangerous. It's somehow wrong. And I think... Yes, it, it doesn't... It kind of like doesn't challenge power even though it kind of challenges power's factual claim right? like you know like tim Quran's book um yes public lies private truths yes yeah, yeah. exactly yeah, right reference cascade work is is great uh, and very useful yeah so so for the audience he kind of documents this effect in a lot of authoritarian regimes former soviet countries uh the biggest one examples like ceausescu in romania where people start booing in his in his crowd and like very quickly he's shot right and yeah. so you have these scenarios all the time where everyone is afraid of expressing their actual opinion until someone starts expressing, a small group of people start expressing their opinions, and then a few people who are too scared before now see the support, they join in, and yeah. then very quickly you basically get a flip, right? Yeah. So there's a very subtle open question here, uh, which is like whether the flip is because people realize, people didn't realize that a lot of people disagreed with the regime before and now they realize like they realize like the ground truth yeah or whether it's because they realize that other people are willing to ch challenge power and right. that's the reason for the flip right yeah i think it's a combination of both in different scenarios and i'll tell you um one area where i think we're going to see this soon we're already beginning to see it is an issue i've i've spoken out on you know quite vociferously and uh which is this this issue of um transgender kids and, you know, doing double mastectomies or vaginoplasties or whatever on 15 year olds or whatever. Um, and I'm actually uh, kind of aware there's probably a generational gap here and that a lot of these sort of more alternative sexualities or sexual expressions or what have you are a lot more accepted um, in your generation of folks than they are in mine, just as for my parents' generation, they would be even less accepted. So, uh, you know, I realize I'm probably not uh, treading on unanimous ground, even with your listeners. Um, having said that, um, I think it is really interesting. And I observed on, on Twitter just yesterday, uh, there was a, a fairly sympathetic, but 
you know, at least vaguely uh, critical um, article on uh, these sorts of transgender surgeons uh, on kids um, uh, in the New York Times uh, just a, a day or two ago. And again, I mean, it was written, it used a lot of the language that uh, the the advocates for this use. I mean, again, it was pretty favorable to, to their side of, of things. Um, but then you flip to the comment section. And this is, of course, the New York Times leadership, readership, which is a extremely normy and very, very left-leaning readership overall. And yeah, I stopped after 30 comments, but none of the 30 most popular reader comments had any sympathy for this at all. Um, uh, you know, they were all, I, mean, I shouldn't say none had any, but none of them were for it. Um, a lot of them were passionately against it and basically were describing this in ways that I, um, and, and I kind of look at this as a, you know, a socially conservative parent of five kids, um, you know, looked at it. And so I sort of feel like, gosh, you know, really the only people who seem to be really uh, in favor of, of a lot of this sort of experimenting that we're doing on kids are uh, some of the people involved in it and a very loud group of people on Twitter. And so I could see a very dramatic preference cascade happening in this area um, soon because I just am like, well, where where is the real constituency for this because if if everybody reading the new york times hates it then i just you know who's really for it um and yeah i think we saw similar sorts of things with covid um with some of the restrictions there i mean most visibly the airline mask mandate where as soon as um the trump appointed judge who i'm i'm proud to say was also an alumni of uh, claremont's fellowships uh, and only 35 years old as soon as she said like, ah, you don't have to do this. We went from a, an almost universal compliance regime in there where, where uh, complaint was just, you know, weird, cranky people to like 10% of people wearing masks on planes. And now it's even less than that. Yeah, so. before we move on to the, uh, from the trans issue, I think, I don't know, I think on that one particularly, it kind of deteriorates when you get to the personnel, uh, personal level so quickly that even if you have these sort of like ideological bubbles, the personal breaks through it, right? It, it's kind of like, it, it's kind of in a strange way, a mirror of, of the gay marriage issue. Yeah. Because with that, like most kind of like, when I mean like normies, I mean like truly normies, right? Like not necessarily yeah. people who agree with like left-wing opinions, people who just like don't really care about politics, yeah. right? Most of the time, you just like care about personal when when you don't know a lot about an issue, right? Most of the time, right. you just kind of like trust the people around you. Sure. And if, if like some of those people around you are gay, then a lot of the time, people don't really have strong kind of like ideological or theological commitments, and they're like, okay, yeah, the, my friend seems reasonable to me. Uh, I'll just go along with this. And sure. this actually, like, the more it becomes a personal issue in terms of. Uh, trans, I think it goes in the other direction, right? Like I am, like it is common enough in my generation that I kind of like know detransitioners in real life, right? Sure. Like I, it's it's not it's not like Helena or like any of those people who I've met online. Like literally, I know like people who in real life like detransitioned right. from like just just like 
living in person, right? Completely uncorrelated with my politics, probably right. don't even know my politics, right? So when you get to that scenario where, where you have like enough people who just know someone or know someone who knows someone who has been through this and who has been through this like genuinely like people don't go through, pe- people like in this age don't go through that kind of like physical suffering, right? That is that is entailed by like going through this process of hormones and surgery, right? If you listen to someone, I think like any kind of normal person who just is like softly non-ideological who listens to this is just going to react to it and say like, no, this is not a good idea. Yeah. And yeah, I, I think there's like, I, I think people kind of overrate social media and kind of online media or mass media as a driver. Uh, I think maybe it, it like helps people like bring salience to things, right? It helps yeah. people uh, like, it helps tell people to like care about an issue, but I think yeah. it's actually like significantly less impactful in terms of just like figuring out or like forcing how they'll, they'll actually come out on that issue. Sure. And with this in particular, I think, yeah, in the coming years, in the coming years, like the the right wing position is just going to dominate, at least when it comes to children, and, well, and probably so. probably more than that. Yeah. I hope so, and I, and I think so, uh, and it's encouraging that that you who are coming from a you know very different set of experiences also think so. But I think one of the reasons the left has actually fought on this issue, which just prima facie was like a really tough issue for them, I, I think they should have realized is that it's kind of a little bit of a keystone in the arch in that if we fundamentally Mm -hmm. challenge their kind of radical identity politics on this and do that successfully, um, all of a sudden a bunch of the other stuff that they're trying to sell may also come up for a more serious examination. Um, uh, What do you mean? Like what specific issues? I I really don't have anything specific in mind, but, you know, you know, any, anything about race or gender politics or, you know, you name it. I mean, I think once, once you show that the emperor was in fact not wearing any clothes on this particular occasion, uh, people will examine the emperor's vestments every time they come out uh, rather than just accept that, of course, they're wearing only the finest uh, robes that we should compliment their quality and weave. Um, so I think, uh, you know, there, there's a, a phrase online you'll sometimes see, you know, the slippery slope remains undefeated. Uh, I've definitely <laughs> seen yes. that too many times. And I should add again, because I assume you probably have a number of listeners who are probably also more of your generation than mine. Um, I did not start out, uh, a social conservative at all. I was very sort of, uh, libertarian-y. I'm still kind of libertarian in certain ways, but, but, but even just in terms of, like very permissive about a lot of things. And then uh, you see instance number 123 of the slippery slope. And I've lived long enough now that you've seen it over you know, 20, 30 years. And you begin to to cast a more skeptical eye um, on a lot of these sorts of claims. Um, and then I just to, to totally backfill uh, just uh, to an earlier uh, point in our conversation um, when we were talking about dissidents, just because I do think it's a good thing to mention, uh, the wonderful book that I would always recommend people read uh, on this issue um, that, that has a lot of uh, relevance for today is Vaclav Havel's book, uh, The Power of the Powerless. Which is really almost yes, I absolutely love that book. Yeah, it's, it's almost more of an extended essay. 
Um, and you can find it for free online or you can support some publisher um, who uh, has has put that out. But I think he really understood some of the meta politics um, around this issue and, and just a, a book that I, I'd highly recommend and an encouraging one because he ended up winning. Uh, you know, yes. his dissidents ended up winning. Yeah, he became the you became the president of Czechoslovakia, right? That's correct. That's correct. And yeah, from from a, and he was a weird dissident intellectual and playwright who who would have never ended up. I mean, he kind of wound up in this sort of right wing place, but if he grew up in America, he never would have wound up there. I mean, just his his kind of very nature. He was a very alternative sort of guy, but it just so happened that the people who were supporting the alternatives to the regime were all right wingers, um, you know, in the United States. Many such cases. <laughs> yeah. So, so he sort of fell in with, with that, uh, that crowd, but, but uh, yeah, terrific, terrific book and, and highly recommended for people. Yeah. I think, I don't know. I would, I, I think there is like the, the weak preference cascade assumption which is that like if this is true for like a narrow specific issue, and then there's there, there's like the strong preference cascade hypothesis, which is like once the ball once the ball starts rolling, like all of social progressivism will collapse at the same time, and I and I think I, I'm I'm quite skeptical on that one, right? I think it's it's like it's not guaranteed, but it's possible. I would even say likely. That, for example, like established left wing media rolls back on uh, at least uh, at least when it comes to kids, uh, transgenderism rolls back that okay it concedes that okay we should perhaps be waiting we should perhaps give more deference to parental consent there there is the possibility that people are um, misprescribed these surgeries and these hormones and that they end up with going through a terrible time and we should be concerned about those and those kids. But at the same time, I don't know, like I understand the like philosophical argument and like the kind of literal, like very like cognitive argument of once this is proven to be false, then the assertions about all sorts of other rights and identities are also proven false but I actually just don't think that's the way most people approach politics. Yeah. Right. I, I don't, I don't necessarily think it's going to be true that people are going to be like sitting down in their armchair and their like first principles of logic book and saying like, all right, if this identity is shown to, to have caused harm and that it is possible for people to be drawn into these identities socially and for that to result in them having poor negative life experiences, then I'm going to start applying these same philosophical principles to like other issues in politics. I don't think that's the case. Maybe that's the case at like the, the elite level. Like maybe there's like a marginal, you know, like policy writer or like centrist journalist who, um, who really does take this seriously and converts. I'm thinking of like Alex Kashuda as an example of this, who really kind of like took a few of the cracks that she saw yeah. and like really took them to their logical, uh, yeah. to, to their logical extension. Like, I, I think that that will happen for some people and to the extent that it happens, it's probably good. Yeah. But also like in terms of creating like a mass preference cascade, like a Ceausescu style preference cascade, I think that's, that's also quite unlikely. 
Yeah, you know, and this is one of these things where I, I'm just going to throw up. I don't know. You you could totally be right. I think what you're saying. Yeah, I is, agree. Is is very reasonable. Um, certainly, I do not think that um, the average person is Kurt Gödel or uh, Bertrand Russell <laughs> doing complex uh, mathematical logic, logical proofs as they sit down and discovering that in fact, you know, the, the system cannot be complete and consistent, and therefore they have to overthrow their entire worldview. Um, that did <laughs> that did kind of happen to me as a college student reading Gödel, Escher, Bach, but that's a longer uh, longer story. But um, uh, yeah, I think that's certainly how things uh, generally do, do. They don't work that way. At the same time, I think as you and you mentioned with Alex, when you open that you know aperture just a little bit, some more stuff might get through it than you would think. Um, and so, uh, but you know, they are, they will backfill, right? And they, I think they will, uh, the smarter ones will find a way to beat a strategic retreat probably. And and you're actually seeing this with some of the COVID lockdown stuff, right? Where the, yeah. the regime media just without any sort of irony is like the right wing is the real lockdowners, you know, just in, in, contravention to like everything that they screamed at the top of their lungs for you know two years and they they actually expect people to believe this and for those who are more ideologically or culturally attached to the accoutrements of the regime uh, they'll probably be successful so um you know we shouldn't we shouldn't underestimate that for sure our I don't know. It depends on what you mean by successful, though, because, of course, this is very select and anecdotal, but I know a lot of people who, I mean, I'll put it this way, right? We have this thing, we had this thing called the Red Wall in the UK, and the Red Wall happened basically because this is kind of like the political historian consensus and I do think it's like a legitimate, like not censored consensus. I think genuinely people people tend to agree on a wide ideological spectrum. They agree on the story that like basically Margaret Thatcher put in a bunch of austerity, put in a bunch of uh, accelerationist, basically, uh, yeah. economic policies. And that an entire generation of coal workers, factory workers, uh, the kind of labor, formerly labor base, went through this and they all said to each other and said to themselves, we went through the worst time of our lives directly because of this government policy. And to me, wh what I'm seeing is it's not the entire generation. It, it might not even be as big as the Red Wall. But there is a solid... 10 to 20 percent of zoomers who otherwise probably would have been completely fine uh voting democrat or or liberal um who looked at this and not very politically involved people just like normal normal folks who just lived through this and said these politicians were directly responsible for the worst time of my life. Yeah. I cannot imagine. And nothing came close. Wow. Well, and I it was directly right. due to these policies. Right. Yeah. And, and so I think, I don't know. I, I agree with you that that kind of strategic retreat has been attempted. Yeah. Right. I just think 
that it, it it's very funny because I I think there there are also like robust polling errors like other people Nate Silver has talked about this a lot Richard sure. Anya recently put out an article about this of like consistent uh, systematic polling errors on specifically the issue of lockdowns yeah but yeah I don't think. I, I think there's like slow marginal costs to making bad political decisions. It's kind of weird, right? I, I kind of see like electoral systems as a lot more kind of accountable and like subtly rational, I think, yeah. than, or like softly rational than a lot of people see it. Where once again, it's like a white pill, right? I, I think that there's just, there, there are costs to bad decisions. And quite frankly, like a good, a good strategy is to, to make, bad decisions less and to make good decisions more and that this will actually like marginally improve things along as we kind of as we kind of get along the way it's strange because i often a lot of the time on this podcast right it's it's very weird you sound like what's wrong by the way sorry yeah 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 there are a lot of people there are a lot of people uh from that community i mean i recently i'm literally just back off uh, from from the plane to like the ineffective altruism conference, right? Okay. That's a big overlap with my audience as well, right? But I, I'm often taking I, I'm often taking the more like there are there are more things wrong with the world side with a lot of people who come on this podcast, a lot of libertarians especially. Uh, I think right before you uh, come will be Brian Kaplan, <laughs> so that'll be uh, that'll yeah. be quite an interesting contrast. Yeah, 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 um, for sure. Well, you know. I mean, look, yeah. I, I, God bless libertarians. I was a big Ron Paul organizer in 2008. Um, I did mm. a lot for that campaign sort of off the record. Um, not off the record, but just, I mean, I wasn't part of the formal campaign, but but as um, as folks who were around that campaign in right, 2008. The, the, like the second, the second degree, like the penumbra of the, com- yeah, yeah, the campaign. Yeah, I mean, like the, all the real stuff happened outside of the formal campaign. Uh, we put together the big, uh, the big rally at Fanel Hall in Boston when he raised a bunch of money and Rand Paul made his national political debut. Anyway, um, it's all I'm saying. I, I'm pretty familiar with, with right libertarian world. Um, but what I think is kind of interesting is that, so, and, and I'm, I'm, you know, certainly familiar with Mises style and the less attractive styles uh, of, uh, you know, Brian Kaplan, uh, you know, libertarianism. Uh, although I think didn't, didn't he fund your, uh, some of this experiment? So maybe I shouldn't uh, be uh, critical, but no, um, no, 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 but, uh, you know, I think one of the really interesting migrations that's happened is the number of people I knew from that world who have kind of migrated, um, into a sort of more, you know, Trump sympathetic, Trump curious, uh, or at least even if they may not like Trump personally, for whatever reasons, they are, you know, aligned with those issues world over, um, over the years. I mean, it, it's large, the number of people I've met who were kind of in both both worlds. And I mean, most particularly, I even think about this just to show that you can meet um, interesting people who uh, go on to do things on random internet message boards. If you're, are you, are you familiar with Congressman Thomas Massey at all? Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, can you just give a brief summary? Yeah, sure. So Thomas was... Um, uh, a, a kind of a real inventing genius uh, who grew up in rural Kentucky and then went to MIT and won the Lemelson student uh, prize there for the sort of outstanding inventor at MIT. So a very bright guy. And then he pioneered the field of, of haptics 
um, for kind of human computer touch uh, interaction. Um, and, and then, you know, it was like living up in Boston and having MIT theses wrote about his work before he was 30. And finally, he just got sick of it. And he moved back to rural Kentucky, um, which is where he was from with his wife, who was also an MIT grad. Um, and it was at that point that I met him on an internet message board for Ron Paul folks. Um, and I'd say that that Thomas, uh, you know, who I, I don't want to overclaim my my relationship with him, but, you know, we've had breakfast a couple times in meat space in DC, even since he's been elected. And um, he's been a guy I mean, um, who occasionally has uh, tangled with, with Trump, uh, and I think for good reasons, but overall is a guy who's been um, very supportive of the president um, and or when, he, when he was president and certainly very supportive of those issues and people from a guy who came from a very, very, and still is uh, a very strong libertarian um, and, and kind of coming from that space. And I, I distinctly remember when I actually, uh, one of the times I had breakfast with him was right after um, Trump was elected. And I was kind of curious to know what he thought about Trump, really. Um, and again, I don't think I'm, I'm telling anything too out of school here, but he's basically like, you know, Jeremy, Trump is better than like 90% of these clowns who I'm serving with. I'm going to tell you that right now. Um, and so it's just a sort of a way of, um, I think, um, ideological light, right libertarianism has had some permutations uh, in the, the sort of 14 years since the Paul movement started. And in my view, uh, the members of that movement who are more tethered to political reality have often kind of wound up in this more of a Trumpist, nationalist, rightist space without necessarily abjuring some of their original, you know, pro-liberty commitments or ideas or necessarily that they agree with, with everything in there. Um, and it's sort of more the cringe libertarians who were, by the way, never helpful to, to Ron Paul when Ron Paul ran the most effective uh, libertarian campaign in the history of the United States. Uh, I, I think I can say that without exaggeration. Um, and those are the guys who continue to be cringe libertarians. Uh, so, you know, take that for what you will. I don't know. Like, I, I think the biggest divide is like, I mean, we were talking earlier about how like normal people don't really kind of see things on a kind of like practical or relational level. I, I think like libertarians are almost like the polar opposite and EAs are kind of like this as well. Effective altruists are kind of like this as well, where like, I mean, Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about going to, to EA, EA Global in DC, right? So I went to this Effective Altruist conference, and I basically made the case that, you know, if you want to get uh, real uh, pandemic prevention reforms done, like, for example, a ban of gain of function, which EAs already, like, at least nominally support, by the way, they, they all, like, nominally sh uh, already believe that, like, a gain of function ban is effective and good and necessary for like preventing like the risk to literally the extin extinction of humanity right even just making the point to them that it's way more likely that a republican administration bans gain of function than a, a democratic one was difficult right yeah. and, and i think the major difficulty here is that like kind of like it or not the republican it, it's like strange right because people they don't there's like a failure of understanding there's not even like a theory of mind there about like 
the Republican Party being one that like primary and pr- that has like the stark divide between or like not necessarily divide, but like kind of correspondence between like metaphor and literal statements in a way that like is not necessarily true, I think, with the Democratic Party, where um, basically like the accusation against Republican Party which is kind of true on the rhetoric level is that like, quote unquote, like bad epistemics, right? You've probably heard this before. Like, even if they believe the right things, they believe those things for the wrong reasons. Sure. Which is like a funny critique, right? Because in order to make that critique, you kind of have to agree that they believe the right things in at least some some of the cases, right? Which I think they do in terms of something like the gain of function ban. Yeah. But at the same time, like, it's kind of weird to have a movement that is like so premised on kind of seeing reality as it is and being kind of like probabilistically based and saying like, okay, what is the actual likelihood for what will happen? What do you expect these actions to be? And to be like very opposed to like a major political player and ignoring like ignoring that kind of cost benefit calculus for what that political player is going to accomplish solely kind of based on their like basically their aesthetics right and the style yeah. of presentation of that party yeah no i think you hit you hit on it there at the end which you, you sort of made the point i was going to make which is they're just again like all of those types of groups do in my view they're overrating their own rationality they're overrating rationality and what they're really reacting to is an aesthetic distaste for the people who hold the correct view that they have and an aesthetic taste um, for the people who hold the incorrect view that they that they um, they have, and I'm very acutely aware of that. And and this is an area again where I think Curtis Yarvin has has done a lot of work and talking about you know you need to bring over elites and be you know wonderfully appealing to elites um, because ultimately seducing elites is kind of how you move things. And I I do think there's something to that, and I guess um, I'm somewhat resistant to it because. Um, you know, even though I do, certainly do share some of their um, aesthetic appreciation for people who I think have bad views on things and, you know, the occasional distaste for people who I might agree with. Overall, I'm just not that way. I mean, there's a reason I live here in, in Montana because there's a lot of people who, um, you know, they're kind of good old boys for lack of a better way of putting it. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I generally kind of like those people. I mean, I, I think that that's the backbone that really made this country, um, you know, in some ways, and sometimes we certainly come from a, a different um, set of experiences. And I might use a lot fancier words and concepts, but they're basically to me, they're, they're solid uh, people. Uh, you know, they're what, uh, you know, I've heard sometimes called as the Americaner. Uh, you know, you'll see them referred to online. And, and you know, I just so I, I don't share the sort of aesthetic revulsion that a lot of people, um, you know, on the left have for those people. And so therefore um, coming to also agree with their political opinions is maybe not uh, as much of a, a leap for me because I, I live around these people and I, I generally like them quite a bit. Right. I, I think that, yes, this this is really important and I think it kind of goes to, uh, there's kind of like this question, I've had people on on, on the show, Richard, we already talked about uh, some of his work, and also uh, Eric Kaufman, on the question of basically, like, are, are colleges effective at changing people's political views, right? And there's some surveys, some done by Eric, uh, 
where basically like most people have the same political views going in as they have going out. Right. Yeah. But at the same time, like Richard has made this argument on the show, right. Basically which, which group of those people like really care about their beliefs, right. Really, really try to kind of manifest those in everything that they do and kind of bring those beliefs out into society and argue for them actively and maybe participate in politics. Right. That really matters. And that mostly happens along the tail ends. Right. And, and I think like, I don't know. I think, part of the fire surveys, right? The academic freedom surveys back this up, right? Where if you basically like hand a megaphone to the most extreme, like 1% uh, on the left and also like silence the most extreme or not even the most extreme, right? Like most, the vast majority of conservatives say they're not willing to speak. So let's say like much more than the extreme, right? If anything, maybe the extreme is less deterred by this, right? But, um, but like basically make, 90% of conservatives like not really talk about their beliefs at all, right? This is still, this is still very impactful, right? And and I think like creating that kind of like aesthetic distaste, even among like libertarians, right? I think like some libertarians have this aesthetic distaste, right? Creating that actually matters a lot. It, It matters a lot for the kind of like coalition building within a party where I think like even like just, just, on the brass tacks of it, I think if you get down to it, you can take any like left wing and like really like serious intellectual, right? I think you take Ezra Klein and like in private at least, he'll admit that most Democrats believe most Democratic policies for the wrong reasons, right? For reasons right. that he wouldn't agree with. And I think the same is true for Republicans. I think the same is true for like every political coalition ever, right? Uh, that basically like creating this like aesthetic divide is some and like overcoming this aesthetic divide is a very important project in the Republican or like in like the quote unquote, like populist broader populist. I think this is true for the, the, like the uh, kind of communitarian left, by the way, right. Uh, As well, where overcoming this like aesthetic divide is like the primary political project that they should be working on at this point. I, I agree. I mean, and, and this, this aesthetic divide is incredibly important I have been a firm believer as somebody who's quite sympathetic to the populist right, who uh, kind of largely endorses the policy and other prescriptions, of the populist right, um, not all of them, but but the vast majority of them, that, you know, we do need to have a portion of the elite that we bring over. That's just how politics works. So, uh, you know, some of that we can create internally from within our own movement, but, uh, you know, some of it you need to co-opt. Uh, some of the folks who are already uh, up there and let them be convinced that their, um, uh, you know, interests will be served by our new uh, way of doing things. I wrote a long piece on this for the American conservative um, that actually got quite a bit of attention. So, uh, you know, I absolutely agree that, um, that that's, that's what we need to pay attention to. And you've got folks, um, Lomez, who you may be familiar with, I don't know, um, kind of a Twitter anon, uh, pretty prominent. No, I don't think so. Oh, okay, interesting guy. You should check him out. He's a Twitter anon. How do I spell it? I'll put it in the. I'll put it in the show notes. L O M E Z, uh, very popular in kind of dissonant right anon circles, um, but he came up with this thing called the Passage Prize, um, that Curtis was actually one of the judges for Curtis Yarvin. Um, and it was essentially a arts and literary prize. He's now doing uh, version 2.0 of this um, for kind of right-wing dissidents, mostly anons, but not exclusively. And, you know, he, he raised about uh, $25,000 worth of prize money for it and got 
well over a thousand submissions in a variety of different categories and came out with this book, which is uh, he sold out in uh, uh, a limited uh, edition, uh, 250 copies for 400 bucks each. Uh, and then uh, I now has a paperback version coming out at a, a considerably more consumer friendly price point. <laughs> but um, but it was all about kind of creating. I mean, the, the book itself is very beautiful and it was creating kind of this prestige aesthetic for these right wing dissident ideas. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that's very that's a very powerful and important strategy. Um and uh, one that we would do, I mean, again, he, he's kind of doing it in a, a very rarefied air of um, the elite where he's really targeting, but but even sort of more broadly at the, a layer or two down from that, it's something that the right needs to pay a lot of attention to. Yeah, I, I think like what is so important here is... Uh, I talked about this a little bit on Jeff Schellenberger's podcast, I've, and I've been trying to put together, uh, I've been trying to put together an article on this, and basically failing. Um, we don't really understand how to create alignment between like new ideas and the political coalition to back them up, mm -hmm. right? We we don't understand which ideas sit in the intersection of like applicable will actually work and also popular within, within an internal coalition, right? That, that is a highly unsolved problem. And I would argue that it's a problem that really hasn't been started on in any kind of serious way at all. Right. And I call this the message mindset fit problem, right? Obviously mm -hmm. taking from product market fit where basically yeah. you, you do have to kind of do that, right? You do have to basically experiment, see what works. And if you see something, that does work, you have to run with it. And to me, this was like one of the most inspiring things about, uh, about NatCon. I actually, I think the podcast with Jeff uh, dropped in the middle of NatCon, but I, I recorded it with him way earlier. And I was talking about this problem, basically seeing like Curtis Yarvin, for example, putting out the, <laughs> this was around the time he put out the, uh, the uh, Dark Elves and Hobbits yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. article. Yeah. And really kind of, I think, casting, casting shade on just like social conservatism in general. Right. Uh, I think that. Which is due to there's this... aesthetic commitments. Yes. Clear, from my view. Yeah. And it's, not only that, it's like, I think he has a model of how we get to basically policy change or like, as he says, regime change where, you know, some guys get together and then they like rationally put together like a plan yeah, and then that plan gets implemented and executed and then, and then we just win. Right. And there's this whole like big question mark in the middle with I think most historically successful political factions where you create basically this message mindset fit, right? Where you, where you find a way to, to share this plan, share this basically paradigm shift, right? Or change in, or like this new ideology and, and there's a market for it. There's, there's an audience that feels like it resonates with them deeply. And that's why they're actually going to vote for this 
dramatic shift in policy instead of voting for whatever they were voting for before. Right. Right. And that middle part, I, I think like if I were to write like the most, what I think is the most common story for how this ends, right. For how we get basically a new conservative era, it would be like something come, some combination of the social conservative, the nationalist, the populist appeals coming out of NatCon the amount of like just by like the sheer quantity of things being experimented with, I think it'll be like NatCon or NatCon adjacent, basically. Right. Just the amount of fervor from there. But let's something comes out of there, catches mainstream attention. There are a bunch of like viral stories and uh and um videos, messages, probably centered around a candidate who is not Trump. I think yeah. people kind of have a formed opinion of Trump at this point. Sure. Right. And I think also not DeSantis. I think people have a formed opinion of DeSantis more or less at this point. Mm-hmm. But basically that kind of viral moment happens and then people rapidly kind of add on, people realize this is a shelling point, right? People realize this is this is where the energy is and then they kind of add on, they, they like add on their power to whatever this new kind of emergent, uh, emergent ideology or narrative is, right? And, and the danger with that, of course, is that like you don't really know which part of the policies it's going to emphasize. You don't really know if it'll actually get everything done. You don't actually know if it'll uh, achieve the underlying kind of prospects or underlying dynamics that need to be changed. But that in the end, right, this, this kind of message mindset fit is going to have to be what happens. Sure. But of course, intuitively... The person who did that without any intellectual architecture around it was Trump at some level, right? Like he he recognized that there was this, you know, possibility without being, but the problem was he wasn't able to, you know, put enough policy behind it, but he sort of intuitively understood that the party needed to go in a different way than where it had been. Um, and he understood that a lot more than a lot of very bright intellectuals. Um so it's interesting, you know, it may, it may be that the the person who owns this new agenda that you're talking to is neither Trump nor DeSantis. Um, and it's going to be really interesting, assuming that those two run in 2024 to see how the dynamic um, kind of coalesces around them. I mean, it's really hard absent some sort of huge DeSantis related scandal. I, and I, I just can't imagine any scandal affecting Trump at this point. Um, but, uh, you know, it's hard for me to imagine that our nominee is not Trump or DeSantis in the GOP. Um, and therefore I think, you know, an interesting question that, that sort of more policy interested folks, uh, around, you know, who are maybe more DeSantis sympathetic than Trump sympathetic are looking at is how can we make sure that DeSantis is representing a little bit more of that policy space that we'd like him to get to than he might right now. And there's, there's some game theory problems that um, a DeSantis candidacy has right now that I think my more, and I haven't taken a position just by the way, I'm Trump and DeSantis. I think they both have, um, you know, very pronounced and obvious uh, strengths and they um, have uh, also some significant, um, weaknesses that are maybe a little more obvious for Trump, but it certainly exists for DeSantis. And I think um, sort of the smarter guys who have pointed out uh, DeSantis's weaknesses, and they've done this to varying degrees of explicitness, 
Uh, you, we saw this recently uh, when Darren Beatty gave an uh, interview to IM1776 that you might have read, or if you read the, the Compact Magazine piece recently that was basically a very pro-Trump, anti-DeSantis piece. It was to kind of say, hey, look, um, can DeSantis really take on the establishment? A, does he have the juice to do that? You know, is he willing to be in the pain box, as Darren Beatty put it, um, you know, when you really oppose the regime? Um, you know, does he have the charisma to pull it off? And then I think even more, this is the the real kind of, this is the black pill on 2024 if both Trump and DeSantis uh, win, which is if DeSantis wins or if DeSantis runs against Trump, um, all of the least attractive parts of the Republican Party will inevitably gravitate toward DeSantis because they will correctly intuit that he is their one vehicle to defeat Trump. And the question then becomes, can DeSantis, who will also unquestionably get a number of very good people um, around him, uh, and I think his broader instincts are quite good, um, can he avoid being co-opted by uh, those bad elements who just want to kind of stay with the same um, uh, sort of bad stuff that has not worked for the Republican Party before? Um, and I think that that getting out of that um, kind of game theoretical problem for him is going to be tricky. And really the only way that that um, I think we can make that work is that for the folks who are very pro-DeSantis uh, on the sort of right, and I think those were a number of those folks uh, were at NatCon, you know, need to hold his feet to the fire uh, in a very significant way and make it clear that, that you know, his support has to be earned and uh, that way, if you wind up with DeSantis, you're getting the best version of DeSantis. And I think with Trump, you know, I think it's pretty clear like what you get with Trump, uh, both positive and negative. So it's a little bit more of a unknown territory. But but maybe we will have to wait for a version 3.0 uh, of all of this before we really get uh, what we're looking for. Yeah, the staffing question is a big, it's just a huge glaring question mark for me. And I mean, like, to 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 your earlier point about epistemic humility or epistemic modesty, right? I just don't know the answer to that question, right? Well, yeah. Of of DeSantis's staffing choices, and yeah. I don't know. You probably still know a lot more than me or my audience, right? So, what's your best guess? Like all caveats required, you know, like uncertainty yeah. exists in the world. Yeah. There's high variance in all of these situations. What's your best guess at yeah. how? Yeah, Both well, of those staffing and, and I would echo. Go. I mean, it's a it's a it's a hackneyed DC phrase, but it's in this case a really for a good reason. I mean, personnel is policy, and one thing I will give Trump um, enormous credit for, and his staff uh, toward the end of, particularly toward the end of the administration, um, when they got the right people uh, running PPO, is they brought in folks. Um, you know, when I say like me, I'm not holding myself out as some paragon of greatness in any way, but they definitely got in some folks who um, had been very outspoken, who were not afraid to take risks, who were very on board with the ideological um, project. And uh, they stood by us when he came. And so I give, you know, I'll do credit. And for the people who are hyper Trump skeptical, I will always point that um as you know as a counterpoint right which is okay well you know but like he actually put a number of pretty based people in various points in his administration and then largely 
um, protected them, particularly toward the end when uh, the left was screaming. Um, so uh, if those same people um, end up running staffing in a Trump 2.0 administration, that will be a very um, strong point in Trump's favor. Um, with DeSantis, I think it's it's hard to tell. I mean, Christina Pouchard, who's you know been his kind of spokesman and has now moved over to the campaign, I think she's really terrific. Somebody once called her the Roy Hobbs of uh, spokespeople. That's a, maybe a little dated reference to some of your audience, but there was a movie called The Natural about baseball when I was a kid about kind of like the perfect baseball player. Uh, she has a little bit of that element as a spokesperson. I mean, I think she's she's really talented. Um, I think uh, from as best I can tell, um, uh, he and his wife, Casey, kind of keep their own counsel. Um, uh, and so their circle is not necessarily so big and therefore, you know, needs to be scrutinized. I, you know, I will say in his favor, again, it's, it's a little bit more of a, a, a personal thing. Um, but uh, on his personal account, um, before he had even run for governor, uh, he followed me on Facebook. I mean, he followed me on Twitter and my account is not <laughs> some huge gigantic account. Um, and he, uh, we were even friends on Facebook at like some not totally personal account. So I take that as a pretty strong <laughs> indication of his <laughs> ideological leanings, because frankly, unless you're pretty thought criminally, there's really no reason why you'd want to be uh, anywhere near my accounts. I mean, I'm not saying again, there's a lot of more based and brilliant people out there on the internet. I'm not making any great claims for myself, but certainly if you're looking for average Normicon respecter, you're not going to find it on my account. Um, so I think that, and you know, there's a lot of other things we can point to, not just his, his record as governor, which has been very good, uh, but his, uh, um, uh, you know, his membership in the Freedom Caucus, um, not a perfect group in, uh, DC, but definitely among those 40 pretty much or uh, so Republican representatives where most of our really good, the overwhelming majority of our um, really good representatives were in that little coterie. So I think there's positive indications about how DeSantis will um, staff an administration if he were to be the guy, but we don't have a lot uh, to work with. There's certainly not, um, you know, I think his guy he's got running uh, his health services, who I'm just blanking on, but was a UCLA prof with like a Harvard MD, PhD. Uh, he seems pretty good. Um, you know, beyond that, I don't have great depth of knowledge about, you know, how, how ideologically his team is. But, you know, look, he's been very effective as governor of Florida. And I think the key thing for members of the right uh, whether they consider themselves dissident or not, is just that uh, we pay a lot of attention to that and, you know, hold him and hold Trump accountable as best we can, given our resources and power um, to make sure that they're they're bringing in good folks and not um, letting the, the camel's nose of the party establishment inside the tent. And and what about the the kind of uh, coalition effect, right? All of the never Trumpers uh, are, uh, let's say hypothetically, right? I don't even know if that'll happen. Actually, I'm, I think it's actually non-trivial whether the never Trumpers will all uh, coalesce around DeSantis if he does run against Trump. Yeah, but like, let's say he does, right? What do you think will happen in that scenario? 
with uh, DeSantis. Well, I think campaign. you're right. There's there's definitely some who've made some noises, and I may be wrong. Maybe it's not Jonah Goldberg here, but it's or maybe it's Bill Crystal, you know, whoever it is, like that. DeSantis has been too nice to Trump, and so they can't even be pro DeSantis, even if he's running against Trump. I'll kind of believe that when I see it. Um, I think that <laughs> the smarter uh, never Trumpers will recognize it. I mean, it's just really hard for me to see again, absent some DeSantis scandal, um, how we wind up with a nominee who is not Trump or DeSantis. I mean, like Cruz is floating out there, but I sort of feel like his time is probably come and went gone, at least for this cycle. Um you know, like Nikki Haley yeah. will have a certain appeal to certain types of people, but, but I just, I, yeah, right. You get it. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, you yeah. know, some of this is we are in the party, but I just think, um, I just don't see it. I mean, I don't see her leapfrogging a guy like DeSantis unless, unless we get into some really, really weird jujitsu where, Trump immediately comes in with all barrels blazing against DeSantis and Haley is able to sneak through as the plausible third option because Trump doesn't turn her fire on, you know, fire on her until later. But I, I just don't think that's likely. Um, yeah, me neither. <laughs> so, so, I mean, to me, it's like if you're a smarter never Trumper and I think the, the intelligence of at least the political intelligence of truly hardcore never Trumper should always be questioned. I sort of, I, I really irritated jo- Jonah Goldberg on Twitter the other day and Jonah, who I, you know, I think has written some intelligent things in the past and who I don't have a, a personal distaste uh, for, but, but when, um, uh, well, I'm just blanking on his name embarrassingly, but uh, came over, Kevin Williamson from national review came over to his publication. And I said, basically, you know, he's a trenchant social critic and a fine writer um, and he'll fit in really well at the, the, uh, you know, your publication because he has absolutely no clue about practical politics. Uh, and Jonah, of course, um, took, took exception to that. Um, but I really mean that, right? Like, it's just like, if you are politically sophisticated and a member of the genuine right and vociferously anti-Trump, like, I'm a little bit skeptical of your political intelligence. I, I do think there are a few people who can thread that needle with... Um, um, you know, they really, they can come up with all the right justifications for, for making that case plausibly. But, but most of the never Trumpers, I think it's just, they're dumb about politics. I mean, uh, and uh, on, on the right, that's, that's the reality, whether or not they, you know, there are plenty of people in uh, the Trump coalition who may have had a lot of personal distaste for Trump. And, you know, I think they were maybe a little bit smarter. So um, uh you know, for the hardcore guys who are smart, I think they will join in with DeSantis. And it'll just be interesting to see how that plays out. I mean, it's not clear. It's not, uh, Trump still has not announced yet, right? And he's not a young guy. Anything could happen. He may, you know, there are these legal things out there. I, I think he is going to run. Uh, the the folks who I've talked to, um, who include sitting members of the House and Senate, you know, seem to think he's going to run. Uh, so, uh, and the people I know in Trump world seem to think he's going to run, but until he says he's running, uh, you don't know. And for DeSantis, um, I think the question of whether he runs is, is a really complicated one. Um, his brand is super hot right now. Um, on the other hand, and, and there's a strong case to be made that you just strike 
when the iron is hot because that that doesn't last forever in politics. On the other hand, like if he does that, can he beat Trump? Uh, I mean, he can beat Trump. I don't know that he will. I wouldn't necessarily bet on it. Um, and uh, even if he does beat Trump, can Trump in a kind of fit of peak pull off enough of his supporters as an, either an independent candidate or in some other permutation where you win the primary, but it's a Pyrrhic victory for DeSantis. And therefore, like if I'm DeSantis and I'm thinking as a game theory, like what are the chances that I can both be the Trump slayer and escape unscathed enough into the general that I can hold the entire party plus Trump leaning independence to win? Um, boy, that looks kind of hard. Um, maybe I should wait till 2028 when certainly if Trump is the guy again, I don't think he would, um, he either wins, in which case I play really nice with him and am his biggest buddy and become his designated successor, um, or he doesn't win. And in 2028, the field truly is wide open because at that point, Trump is in his 80s. And even if he's running, uh, the magic might be a little bit gone. So, uh, you know, I've sort of, I've sketched a pretty, um, persuasive case, arguably implicitly here for DeSantis not to run in 2024. But but working against that is basically like you you do things in politics when your stock is high, and DeSantis's stock couldn't be much higher among the party faithful than it is now. So um, I, I don't know. I don't. Uh, I'm not. Uh, I don't have. I'm not an insider in DeSantis world. Although I've again been broadly supportive of uh, what he's been trying to do. Many of the things uh, since even before he ran. Florida governor. Um, but uh, it's it's going to be a complicated uh, internal chess match to figure out, um, you know, where this will go. I, I think I agree with you that he's less than likely to raise. I, I would bet, bet against him running if Trump runs just because of the threat of just losing the primary. I think it's pretty likely that he loses the primary. Yeah. But I actually think if he wins, if he wins, that'll be more of a more to the benefit of him. Uh, there, there's, or like the fact that there was a primary will be more of a benefit to him. Yeah. There's a kind of like, I think like just like the empirical research, um, Matt Iglesias, who's kind of left leaning, but I think the data he presented is rigorous, has posted about this, right? That contested primaries tend to actually increase the likelihood of presidents, uh, presidents ultimately winning. Yep. And I mean, like the simplest case for this is just whenever they go after the kind of maximalist case of saying DeSantis is just like Trump he can just go, no, this is absurd. We just had a primary to settle this, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so you can have, and I, I think that will be quite appealing to sort of, you know, centrist or like swing voters. I, I, I think that's true. And yet Trump is a little bit sui generis in this, correct? Because, you know, normally, I mean, not every time when somebody loses a primary, do they just happily go off and, you know, hold. Yeah, Trump in specific is not right. is not known for his uh, is not known for his grace. It's it's hard for me to see Trump losing a primary to DeSantis, and you know, saying we must all unite around the great hero Ron DeSantis for the future. <laughs> That's fair. Um, and so I think this mm -hmm. is again where you can be really smart and get into a lot of knowledge and data, which, by the way, I I have looked at myself and find generally persuasive. Um, but I think you can you can go a little bit too far with that. You have to look at the specific instance in question 
And then again, you know, just to kind of touch on, I think, some of the danger and why I, you know, the only people I'm really intolerant of right now in the Trump-DeSantis wars are the people who say it obviously must be Trump and anyone who is pro-DeSantis is a a traitor to the cause, or it obviously must be uh, DeSantis and anyone who's pro-Trump is a traitor to the cause. Those are the only people who are on my enemies list right now. Um, Is just what you touched on, which is, Okay, he beats Trump in the primary, and now he's like, "I'm your friendly moderate guy." Well, <laughs> conservatives, is that what we want? Right? Is that? And especially if he then tries to prove that with his appointments. So, um, you know, I think it's very clear where his sympathies lie. But in a contest with Trump, you know, a lot of the game theory begins working against us. And again, I'm, I'm truly, I'm not taking a position on this. I'm, I'm taking a wait and see approach. But this is a uh, it's a, a wicked problem, as uh, some of our uh, rationalist friends like to say. And I think, you know, really the only thing we can do is just try to watch it play out and get more information that will hopefully allow uh, those of us who are interested in kind of advancing this right wing project more generally in America to to make a better and, and more informed decision. Um, and that's, you know, that's kind of where I'd leave it. And again, I respect people who are like, you know, I'm totally on the Trump train or I'm on the DeSantis train right now because I just think that the great weight of the evidence suggests that that candidate will be better. Um, but if they're just totally dismissive of the downsides of their candidate, I think that they're you know, they're wearing rose colored glasses. Yeah. And I think it's, I mean, once again, borrowing something from the rationalists, right? I think it's super important to like, Number one, be willing to be proven wrong. And number two, like, say that you're willing to be proven wrong, right? I think I'm, like, pretty... I, I wouldn't say, like... I think never Trump is definitely the wrong word, but, like, meh Trump. Like, yeah. my kind of argument has always been, like, you know, Trump's first term was primary, primarily characterized by basically caving to the establishment and having a lot of uncorrelated errors, a lot of high, a high degree of random errors, right? And so I expect that's what the second Trump term is going to be like. A lot of people say like, oh, look at the Schedule F stuff. Look at the infrastructure that's being built. Okay, things are going to go the other way. And my response to that is like, all right, I, I, I'd be really glad to see that. I think it's unlikely. But most importantly, right, I think this is what has, I think really helped kind of build those relationships and not come off in a kind of negative some way, right? Like be like kind of genuine in that, right? Actually believing that. Like I genuinely yeah. believe like, okay, prove me, like I don't say prove me wrong as a kind of like, yeah. as a kind of like, you know, uh, mocking thing, right? I, I say prove me wrong as in like, it'd be really cool if you guys proved me wrong. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. That's right. Be like kind of enthusiastic about that. No, absolutely. And, that, and that's my view as well. And it's, uh, you know, and I, I probably have yeah. more data on this than, than you do just because of where we, we sit, you know, and yeah, for sure. Um, but, but, you know, my view is like, my, like my one sentence view is like DeSantis is the, the safer pair of hands, but to tr- Trump has much higher upside. Um, and it just hmm. depends on, <clears throat> where you think the movement is and what you're looking for. Um, And, you know, again, I think to make that decision, we need to, uh, those of us who are not already fully decided on it need to get, um, get more data, you know, see, see what the actions of these people are. Certainly DeSantis is going to get another test of his actual governance. uh, Unfortunately, right now uh, here in Florida with this hurricane coming in. 
Um, mm. And, uh, you know, again, that's, you know, he, I think he did very well on COVID, but this will be another chance to prove that um, he can provide competent conservative governance, which is certainly what uh, a lot of folks will be, uh, will be looking for. Yeah. And I think DeSantis is kind of willing to be moderate in like very kind of like non-establishment ways and very like popular ways, right? Like something that gets pointed out by like, you know, like Sagar and Jetty, I don't know how, it, how you feel about him, yeah. but like something that gets pointed out in that kind of like weird, like centrist populist lane is that like, he points out a lot that, um, you know, uh, Florida voters also voted for the $15 minimum wage. And also DeSantis, like DeSantis, like raised broadly, right? Raised teacher pay while during the pandemic, Right, he both took a kind of like honest, uh, solidly conservative stance against lockdowns, and simultaneously, right, said we're going to take these measures which are broadly popular. Maybe goes against sort of the kind of conservative establishment thinking sure. on on like uh, on pay, right, and on kind of pay for government employees, but are willing to basically make these sort of. Um, Almost like almost like mercantilist or almost like uh, I'm I'm forgetting the word now, right? But like these like coalitional plays, right? That I yeah. think have been quite brilliant. Yeah, no, absolutely, and and I think you you touch on um, the kind of definition of moderate, and I think that's that's also really important. And I'll I'll just give you an example. I'm yes, gonna lead off, yeah. leave off the name, but there's a there's a pretty prominent TV journalist who has been a friend of mine since college and we've increasingly diverged politically. Um, but his, but we're still friendly personally. And, you know, I see him when I go up to New York, um, uh, you know, his brand has kind of been to be like hyper moderate, but what that really means when you scratch that a little bit is he's like economically very pre-market and socially pretty darn liberal. And that is what, when elites tend to talk about moderates, that's what they really mean. And, you know, he's not an extreme free marketer and he's not an extreme social leftist. He's so, but, but, but it's like, you're socially liberal and economically conservative. Um, whereas if you're socially conservative and economically liberal, and that might be somebody like a little bit like a Mike Huckabee, um, well, that's not moderate at all. Even though, of course, and you, you may have seen these kind of plot charts of where voters um, kind of fall on the political spectrum with each dot, you know, of a surveyed voter representing, you know, where they fall on the social and economic um, realm of things. But the the sort of social conservative, uh, economically more liberal quadrant has quite a number of people in it, whereas the socially liberal and economically conservative uh, quadrant has very, very few people in it, but they all write for yeah. New York media. Uh, <laughs> you know? And I mean, yeah. it's not just New York. I'm not picking on New York, but they, they all write for establishment media and they think that that's what moderate moderation is. And in fact, again, this was something that Trump just kind of did intuitively, but he understood that there was this much bigger space uh, to kind of, you know, be a little unorthodox while still, you know, definitely being a markets and business guy. And, um, you know, but from everything from tariffs to what he was going to do to social security, uh, he broke with 
some of the more fashionable ideas on the right that were, you know, uh, and supported ideas that were more popular with Republican voters. Yeah, I, I think here's the thing, right? There, there's this book like Inad- Inadequate Equilibria, which is basically, which is this very interesting book uh, about basically how like a lot of questions have really bad answers, mm-hmm. if that makes sense, right? We're very far from having an efficient, uh, from like the efficient frontier. Yep on answers and i think that that's that's like basically right in terms of of uh, political theory and to me the upshot of this is basically you should be like really kind of tall not tolerant in the kind of like superficial sense you know but like genuinely like consider consider ideas that you really disagree with in terms of like how voter how like voter psychology actually works because of just how inadequate whatever you think of it is going to be right how low resolution i think like everyone who's thinking about this issue is going to be and so yeah i i basically i basically agree with you on on that vague point i think on like i don't know this is something weird right because it's sort of like a little bit contradictory with the thing i said earlier about like message mindset fit right about how basically things are going to happen as a kind of like almost spiritual movement where they're just people kind of uncover like the 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 message that needs to be that needs to be forged right because if, if that's your hypothesis right then you should just be kind of like fomenting these movements and like really like pushing these movements and you shouldn't be like you shouldn't be like really considering like oh what are what are the kind of like different like cost benefits and what are the upsides of these vast yeah. ranges of ideas right so i don't know can you square that circle I, i've been kind of thinking well, well about for me this it's really easy it's because it's just it comes down again to epistemic humility i don't know i mean this is you know where again i depart a little bit from the courtesies of of the world even though i he's, you know he's a much more brilliant thinker than i will ever be but when I, you know, when I say that, and I say that about many people, because it's certainly true, um, you know, I am always reminded of Tom Sowell's uh, admonition that there have been a great many catastrophes, uh, very few caused by the village idiot, and a great many by the village genius. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so you know, like intelligence is super, super important, but it's not everything, especially if you know it doesn't come with appropriate humility about its limits. So. I think there's a great argument to be made for both of these cases, and I don't know which one is right. So I'm going to try to play in both sandboxes. You know, we need to be creating a cool movement um, and have that energy that people will just be attracted to. And I think there's a lot of folks on the kind of a non-dissident world who are really trying to do that. And I say more power to them. That's great. Hope you're right. Uh, like get back to me, and I'm. And I mean, I'm going to help them where I can. Um, and then there's kind of policy nerds who are kind of trying to say, you know, actually we just need a, you know, a better efficient frontier hypothesis. And, uh, you know, we need, a, um, you know, to kind of tweak the policies in this way and this way, and then we'll be popular. That could also be true. I don't see it as totally at odds with the, the first statement, but I think we, you know, we need to work on both dimensions with a realization that we don't really know. We don't know what's going to, be successful and there's plausible arguments that that either or both of them um 
could be successful. And so we should try it with them. Now, if neither of them can be successful, then we're in real problem. But uh, I'll just be measuring my cell in the gulag at that point. Um, <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, sort of irrelevant. Yeah. And to me, right, this is like, yeah, I don't know if I would call myself kind of post-rationalist, but a lot of the time when I'm interacting with the rationalist community, this is kind of where I get to. Right, where it's like these, yeah, these basically like edge cases where rationalism really breaks down and breaks down in quite severe and, uh, quite frankly, like destructive ways. Yeah. And yeah. Well, the thinking is overrated, you know, and this is again yes. a painful <laughs> painful thing for people in the rationalist movement. And again, this is partially like my age now, you know, I'm just an older guy and you know, you sort of see a little more of life and you you have more experience that are mediated by communities that have made standards that have not been thought through but have been passed down ultimately. Um and those tend to work um pretty well, not always, but but pretty well. But, you know, here's an argument. I mean, this is the extreme opposite end. Um, but I have, I have a good friend and she's a really, really brilliant young woman, probably about your age. And, um, you know, she's a big Nietzschean and she also likes Rousseau a lot. I mean, and whether, you know, like those are totally compatible. I'll Interesting. To, yeah. I'll leave to the political philosophers, but she, she, she's, she's, you know, those are her fundamental, she's uh, kind of commitments. Um, and uh, among other philosophical commitments, and I've attacked both of them because I'm like, their lives were disasters. You know, like that's my ultimate argument. Again, you know, Nietzsche probably died of syphilis, you know, with no kids and no family and was just this weird guy. And Rousseau abandoned his family. And she's sort of appalled that I would use this. I mean, she's not appalled. She just thinks it's a very American way of thinking. She's not American of thinking about things. And, you know, I'll plead a little guilty to that. Um, and that it's not that good people can't have bad ideas and that um, bad people can't have good ideas. Certainly they can. But at a certain level, when I'm evaluating somebody's, you know, grand idea, I kind of like look at, well, what what is their life like? What's their community? You know, they're trying to put this into practice. Does it really make sense? Because, you know, the communists spun out really brilliant sounding ideas and, you know, they they led to the murder of, you know, a hundred million, give or take. Right. Um, and so, uh, you know, I'm just old fashioned in that way. I'm very, I'm very post-rationalist. It's been a long time since I would have uh, definitely classed myself in that world. And it's not that I think that we shouldn't try to, um, do some of the improvement in our reasoning and some of the ways that they, promote or that we shouldn't be epistemically modest, but I think part of that modesty, and this is why ultimately I'm a conservative and would call myself that, although maybe, you know, not, not in, uh, given the degeneracy of our current society, but why I would have certainly uh, wanted to conserve a lot of what I grew up in is that, you know, it, it kind of worked. Um, and these, these things, um, were, were rich traditions and, uh, enabled a successful society for a long time. And that is something that in a um, post-rationalist way we should take very seriously. Are you familiar with the paradox of Chesterton Spence or that concept? Yes, yes. Yeah, so... Wait, I've never heard it referred to as a paradox. Oh, he, he refers to it as a paradox in a way, which... Interesting. Which arguably it isn't. If you actually read the um, 
the thing, and I think that this notion that, and you know, for those of your uh, listeners who may not be familiar, it's this. Yeah, please explain it. <laughs> he, he he has this kind of uh, metaphor that he brings out of social institutions. He talks about like a fence in the middle of the road, and if you see this fence in the middle of the road, under what circumstances should you take it down? And he basically argues the only circumstance under which you should take it down is if you know exactly why it was put up there, and now that you know there's no good reason for having had it there or, you know, exactly why the reasons were wrong that it was there. And it's clearly been just an impediment for a long time. And it's, you know, but he basically points out the fence wasn't put there by crazy people, um, usually, uh, especially if it's been there for a long time. And uh, if it it served purposes for a long time, um, only, you know, if we know uh, why it should be torn, you know, should it was put up, should we be, be let it be torn down? And of course, what he's just doing is having an extended metaphor for this fence as a social or cultural institution, you know, that, that we should only touch these institutions that are living, organic, breathing instantiations of generations of our wisdom. Um, we should only tear them down if we're darn sure we know why they were put up and we understand that there were probably good reasons why they were put up, but for some reason, you know, those new reasons are are no longer being served. And when we when we approach those sorts of institutions with that type of modesty, then we tend to make, you know, maybe conversely, you know, somewhat contradictorily, better rationalist decisions by kind of abandoning this notion of pure rationalism. Oh, I see. Yes, I see. Yeah, that is. Yeah, I definitely need to read more Chesterton. That is, he's great. One of the he's great. He's a, he's a brilliant writer. You know, he's a traditional Catholic. He's really kind of come back into to to vogue recently. If you saw this uh, viral clip from uh, Meloni, the uh, the woman who was just yes, to, yeah. I mean, you know, she references Chesterton. Uh, you know, at the end of her talk, and 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 you know, she's not the only one. I see him him increasingly uh, sort of be referenced by people, and it's definitely a person worth reading again, you know, and you don't need to become, I mean, he was an Orthodox Catholic. I'm not, uh, but and you don't even, I don't think need to be religious to appreciate um, his uh, appreciation for the divine and in, in the kind of broadest, most spiritual sense, if you want to put it that way. And uh, his, his appreciation for tradition. So, I mean, that is a really big struggle to me. You mentioned it's kind of difficult to do this in some time. And I think that's particularly true for my generation. Yeah. Uh, I think at NatCon, we actually briefly talked about this. Yeah. Right. That especially in the religious dimension, right. It is kind of like Nietzsche's idea come to fruition or, or God like way, way past even what he predicted, I think, where he predicted that basically like people would not be able to, believe in metaphysics yeah right yeah that this over this that this overarching order is just detached from the way people interact in their daily lives now yeah and i think to me like people don't even believe in like not even metaphysics i've been trying to find a very good way to to phrase this the the one that i've i've temporarily settled on is like people don't believe in like history in the kind of fukuyama sense yeah right people don't believe that there is like this overarching, even like order to reality. Yeah. Right. They don't, they don't believe that like 
political issues are kind of correlated in the way that I think people really believed in the age of the Cold War, in kind of especially like pre, yeah, pre end of Cold War times, people really believed like, oh, all of this is towards fighting the Soviet Union or towards fighting yeah. the Nazis or so on. Yeah. Right. That the kind of like, there's this very interesting podcast, which I, I initially kind of dismissed the main ideas of, but now I'm kind of returning to. Uh, with uh, Robin Hanson and Agnes Callard, where they talk about like grasping an idea, right? That, that yeah. There's like this philosophical prizing of basically feeling like an idea is just incredibly real in front of you. And to do that, I think you need to do that to really believe in a religion. You need to do that even to believe in history, right? To believe in, in even like the lowercase h history, right? And that the way you you're interacting with things that are just so detached from any time and place as, as especially a zoomer, but I think anyone yeah. on the internet makes this very difficult. Right. So yeah. I don't know. Do you have any, I, I guess I think it's on? really hard to get rid of metaphysics. I mean, that would be an area in which I guess I'd probably just disagree with. I mean, there's a few areas I'd disagree with Nietzsche. I mean, there's a, there's a, a, a pretty normie, but overall very good longtime vlogger on the right named Ace of Spades. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's been, he's been at the game forever. I'm not actually. Uh, he is, he's, he's been blogging, I think basically professionally, he's been running that blog for probably 20 years. I mean, something absurd. I mean, and for a, a, it, like, you know, he won like best blog at CPAC 15 years ago or something. I mean, he's been, been there for quite some time. <laughs> he, um, he had a great quote that I once used in a Claremont review of books uh, piece that I wrote. And I'm going to mangle it a bit here, but it, basically he said, look, I'm a lonely uh, secularist on the right, but what strikes me, you know, as a lonely secularist on the right, looking at the left is that they're very bad secularists and that in an attempt to remove kind of religious thought, you know, to essentially remove religion from society, they've allowed religious thought to infect every mode of their thinking. And I think there is um, a lot to that. You know, again, I, I see so much, I think you can be careful about being too reductionist, but but so much of the kind of craziness of um, the left is, is a sort of post-God craziness. You know, it's like they need... They need something that is imminent. They need something that is holy. They need something that is sacred. And so they want to transform the body or they want to, you know, do all these other things. These become, you know, Black Lives Matter. These become religious or metaphysical kind of statements of their being. And, um, you know, for me as a, a believer and a, a struggling uh, believer, but a believer nonetheless, you know, it's it, it works much better when you you know, let religion, let religion be religion and, uh, keep, uh, keep that type of religious thinking out of your allegedly rational approach to politics because it becomes, it becomes very dangerous. I mean, if, if kind of excess, um, faith in God is, is maybe dangerous at times, uh, in a political sphere when it's, it's too confident, but, uh, excess faith in not God as we saw with the Nazis or the communists or Paul Pot or whatever you have, uh, you know, has, has had some even worse outcomes. Um, but again, you know, this is a difficult message to give to Gen Z, which is a much more secular generation. And, and also I think it's, you know, you're just, you, you personally, I obviously don't know everything about your personal life, but I assume you're not married. 
uh, don't have kids. I unfortunately am not. Yeah. So, I mean, it's fine. You've got time, but um, you just, when you think about these issues from that perspective, you just sit in a very different place than, you know, I've got five children and I'm thinking about their future in very concrete, uh, non-abstract, non-theoretical ways about like, you know, how do I give these kids you know, the best life. And, you know, this is, this should not require them to, you know, engage in these type of metaphysical speculation, you know, just to, uh, you know, sort of exist in the world. And so, you know, as, as you have a little bit more life experience, I think inevitably, I'm not saying that your view will change in predictable ways or that my view changed in predictable ways. It certainly didn't, but they will change. And uh, certain things, you know, become more important and certain other things, recede a little more into the background and that's just you know that's that's life yeah this is i think yeah this is always something that i've grappled with in a way it's like weird right because i'm here i think it's worth expressing my thoughts my predictions of what will happen in politics and yet i think i i sort of put a lot of weight in my kind of life situation in a kind of maybe like soft determinism to what i think than most people yeah right as i i think like which is strange because i expect that my views will diverge in pretty uncorrelated ways in the future as as I learn more, as I go through really these like what I think are fundamentally life changing experiences, yeah. And at the same time, I think it's worth kind of like I think it's worth speaking about my analysis now and speaking about my analysis then. Of course, right? I think that's still worthwhile. Of course, especially if you're going about it as we all should, you know. I think in a in a modest way of putting forth your best ideas and you know being open to to other ideas, and certainly there are plenty of brilliant. Uh, political philosophers, in fact, probably most of them, you know, made a lot of their most important work as as young people. Um, you know, on the other hand, uh, Balash Orban, I spent a bunch of time in Hungary earlier this year, kind of uh, up to and around the election there. And Balash Orban, who is uh, kind of the, the political director for Prime Minister Orban, although they're not related, and a member of the Hungarian parliament. And he he wrote a very good book called The Hungarian Way of Statecraft, which is a really great piece of real politique writing. Um, but it, just he had one quote in this that wasn't from from him, but he's I mean, he's in his 20s, I think, maybe late 20s, maybe 30. Um, really? And he I didn't know I didn't know that about him. <laughs> yeah. So he's I mean, he's a young guy um, and uh, he sort of was approaching with appropriate uh, epistemic modesty this entire project he was taking of doing a book like this at his age. And he said, uh, again, quoting somebody else, one who writes a lot when he is young is embarrassed a lot when he is old. Um, and, you know, there's something to that, but I think you, you can minimize that embarrassment a lot by just, uh, you know, because I'm of course saying lots of things, even at my age right now that I'm sure in 20 years, I'll look back and say, wow, that was stupid. Um, you know, just, I think, being uh, appropriately modest and open to the views of others and, uh, you know, trying to to kind of 
grasp in the dark and understand that that's ultimately, you know, what we all do to, to varying degrees. Yeah, I think when, when I'm kind of challenged on these points, a lot of the time I'll just point to the inadequate equilibria case again. Yeah. And I'll be like, yeah, you shouldn't take my, my points that seriously and they'll probably change. Yeah. But also you shouldn't take anyone's points that seriously. And so relatively you should still be um, paying attention at least a little bit to what I say. Right. Well, it's it's hard for somebody like you because you're obviously a super, super bright guy. And therefore you have it a little bit tougher because you're going to see certain types of things um, that other people are not going to be able to see, or you're going to be able to process information that other people, and I'm not just talking about other like normie whatever, I'm talking about other, you know, pretty bright people are not going to be able to process. But you kind of, when you're having that grand metaphysical vision, you need to like, not take it too seriously, you know, yeah. and, uh, you know, just understand that, that that intelligence, while it's really, it is really important and really useful, but it's, it's just a piece and I think if you if you're in hyper intellectual environments, and if uh, I assume as you did, and, and certainly as I did, going through the Harvards and Yales and Stanfords of the world, if you kind of grow up, you know, being patted on the head for how smart you are, um, it can be easy to overrate that as a mode of solving problems and of going through life. Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of difficult to do this now i i think like just silicon valley china i mean i think like people who are less familiar with china were kind of not on this point before the covid lockdowns but like the china covid lockdowns kind of make this clear right like it's so easy to do like quote unquote like smart but also incredibly destructive and in hindsight like terrible things yeah absolutely right and, and there are just like constant examples of that just like everywhere around us that i think i don't know i i think that if you're seriously kind of like i mean part of this is the humility thing there there are these biases that affect a lot of people right and that do affect me to some degree as well but i think like at, at this point right if you're just observing the world around you it is very difficult to say that like that like being smart entitles you to like even any degree of confidence. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, that's it's a just, that's a very yeah. wise you know thing. I certainly had not figured that out probably uh, when I was in your age because it's not necessarily universally true. Like being smart when you're doing a tech startup is like a huge huge piece of the puzzle, but it's. Uh, I, again, I know because I was in that background and I saw who succeeded and who didn't. Um, yeah, maybe I'm overstating the case here, right? Well, when I say like any degree of confidence, I, I don't mean like, okay, yeah, that's definitely overstating the case. Right. Right? Any is, is not the right word here. Right. But like, I don't know. You you should not be acting with the confidence of Xi Jinping. Right. You should not be acting with like one-tenth of the confidence the, of Xi Jinping. Th that's right. <laughs> and I think I think the, the, the difficult thing, and again, I tell this all the time to these people who are much smarter than me, who nonetheless, I, you know, I think, although I don't know, are wrong about a bunch of stuff is, um, you know, you just, you shouldn't like in politics, sometimes we need to act as if we're sure for a variety of very practical reasons. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, we didn't, we didn't get into this, but when I was at Hoover, uh, I worked very closely for a decade with the late secretary of state, George Schultz. It was one of the you know two people to hold four cabinet positions. He was Reagan's Secretary of State through basically the whole end of the Cold War. An incredibly 
effective actor. I mean, he was a much more normie con than I am, to say the least, and a very establishment figure. But I definitely got to look and see how he did policymaking and worked with people at the highest level. And one thing that I definitely observed in watching him, and he was a smart guy, he had a, a doctorate in, in math from MIT and had taught there as a, not a doctorate in math, in, in economics and had taught there as an economist for a decade before he came to, to Stanford. And, um, uh, you know, he was very inquisitive about and, and open to getting lots of different sources of information. Um, but then when he acted, he actually acted in a very decisive fashion. So um, I think, you know, our, our epistemics always need to be modest, but then sometimes in political action, you know, you're quite decisive and maybe a little immodest. Um, and it's, it's okay to, I think, be bifurcated in that way. It's just the nature of the difference of the activities of, of political action versus thought. Um, but, but yeah. I yeah, just, exactly. Uh, I think like, this is something that I've been also kind of working on and not really getting a good sense of how to put it in an article, but I phrase this as sort of like, high out, output, high input uh, communication, right? Like basically you kind of have two categories of people which are like, there's like low output, low input or low, low output, high input, right? So people who consider a lot of information and then kind of make claims in very uncharismatic dry ways. And then there's like the opposite, right? There, there's people with a lot of bluster who don't really kind of reconsider a lot, right? High output, low input and you kind of want the best of both worlds right you want someone who is like really able to sell people on something right but is also like really observant and really willing to change his or her mind right no that's exactly right and you know again i don't want to prejudice myself this is without reference to who i'd support but i think desantis has a lot of that like if you look at how he approached covid he was very analytical in what he did he read a lot of stuff in a way that a lot of our governors who even those who made the right decisions they weren't able to process it like he was they weren't able to go get as many different types of sources as he did but then when he acted he just acted very decisively and you know sometimes he cited those specific things but he just moved forward in a very without overcomplicating things and i think that's an important to have both those skill sets yeah, you can see. Maybe I'll put out this article. Is DeSantis is DeSantis uh, uh, a rationalist champion? <laughs> I think he definitely he sort of is in a sense. I mean, again, if you look at what he did, and I, you know, I say this as a guy who was very you know right on COVID very early and actually made a fair bit of money betting on a stock market crash because of it. Um, but uh, uh, neither here nor there. But but um, you know he understood how to interrogate expertise but not just go to official expertise and to, you know, blot out what the, you know, the thing he did is he, you know, he kind of looked cause he's like, okay, well, you know, I'm going to grab this guy. Like he gets that like people at Harvard and Stanford, for example, are smart. So he's not like totally dismissive, even when they are generally totally wrongheaded as they, they usually are. But what he did is, you know, he kind of went and found, like a few of the dissidents on the faculty at, you know, Harvard and Stanford and places like that or Yale who didn't agree with the thing. And, and that, you know, they gave him the information to be skeptical, but it wasn't dumb information. You know, it wasn't like, you know, 
you know, overdosing on ivermectin, you know, and again, I'm not, I'm not going to wade into the ivermectin words at this point. I'm not saying that it was definitively wrong, but um, you know, there were people who made dumb claims about it, whether or not it was right. And uh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's how I'd put it. Um, and by talking, you know, by seeking out really smart dissident people who actually had domain knowledge and expertise, who also kind of agreed with a little bit of his prior um he was able to say, actually, you know what, these guys are right. And, you know, everybody else is wrong, but, you know, he didn't end up sounding like a crank. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, maybe maybe he is the uh, the rationalist hero. We'll need more than the rationalist hero as our next president is the the issue of why that is uh, a necessary and excellent quality of DeSantis's, but not uh, maybe sufficient yet to anoint him as the uh, the chosen one. Yeah, when it comes to changing my mind, I mean, what's this of a segue, right? But something that you've uh, written about is uh, immigration and immigration restriction. Ah, sure. Uh, even we, yeah, and even when it comes to legal immigration, right? Yeah. So I'm interested in having my mind uh, changed here. Uh, what is actually? Let's let's go let's go into this, right? I think an article that was very interesting to me was your uh, article on uh, settlers versus immigrants. Sure. And do you want to just kind of start with the case for that? What's the yeah. main kind of like? Yeah, so this was a yeah. piece in the American Mind called "A Nation of Settlers," and it was it was pretty closely based on a talk I gave um, at a conference we did in D.C. called "The Lies of the Ruling Class," um, and I definitely recommend folks check it out. But essentially, what I attempted to do is to kind of create uh, what was an actual accurate history of this idea of us being a nation of immigrants, which is not, you know, contrary to what you would typically hear in school, sort of something from time immemorial, but really comes out of a very specific uh, Democratic Party political plan to win over ethnic Catholic voters in, you know, the late 1950s, early 1960s. Um, and at that point, John F. Kennedy comes out with a book called A Nation of Immigrants. Uh, he's still a senator at the time, but he's looking at becoming president and he's kind of looking at, well, you know, who can I win over? And of course, Catholics were already pretty partial to him, but he understood that in particular, these certain communities um, would be very influential. And I kind of talk about this whole notion of a nation of immigrants as being built by a combination of Jewish and Catholic ethnic activism, basically in the 20th century. Um, but that in fact, when you go back to the early days of the US, we were in fact, a nation of settlers. And the, the key distinction there is that the people who showed up on the Mayflower were not coming in to a settled society. Now, of course, I'm not suggesting there were not people there. Obviously, the Native Americans and their many different tribes were there. But uh, the, the colonists, you know, whether you think that they were you know, involved in genocide or whether they were the shining city upon the hill, um, were not trying to go join the Indian community. They were trying to build their own community. And that's what they did. They ultimately settled on the land, which in very few cases had any permanent settlement on in any case, since the, the Native Americans tended to be pretty nomadic. Um, and they created a new community. And that really, this in many ways was the predominant form of settlement in the United States for the majority of our history um, from 1620 onward. And the kind of interesting data point that I cited for that is if you read de Tocqueville's uh, Democracy in America, which was written in the, the 1830s, the word immigrant does not appear or immigration anywhere in it. 
And now that, of course, wasn't because, and there are people who have actually written, I mean, I'm, this is not a, a unique point that I've found out. Um, you know, the, the reason why was this was kind of before the first big wave of non-British immigration uh, to the U.S., which began to happen in the late 1840s uh, when you had a combination of uh, the Irish potato famine and a variety of failed revolutions in, in Central Europe. Um, and so you begin to get this very large um, wave of immigration. Now, this is, again, not to say that there were not immigrants from some of these places uh, before, but in at the time of the revolution, as best we can tell, um, uh, the U.S. Uh, citizen population was about 85% British. Uh, and, uh, you know, um, so, so it was much, much less diverse in that perspective. And essentially everybody who signed the Declaration of Independence, except for one Catholic, Catholic was a Protestant. So it was much more uniform in that way. Um, but what, what some of the commentators on de Tocqueville have pointed out is that when he's making this case, um, it's that these people didn't see themselves as immigrants. They saw themselves as settlers kind of settling out on a frontier. So of course, I mean, you had a mix of activity even in that time. Some people were coming in to settled societies, but but there was really a much more of a push outward. And then sort of once you have this immigration starting in the mid 19th century until uh, the sort of about 1890, and I'm that's not an arbitrary date, I'll get to that in just a second, you had a sort of more mixed pattern where you still had some people pushing out on the frontier, but you had more and more people beginning to settle into a very established country, into establishment established communities. And then in 1890, the Census Bureau officially declares the frontier of America closed, um, that we sort of settled everywhere, uh, at least at some level, that you could settle. Now, if you, uh, if you lived where I lived in Montana, uh, you would be questioned at at times because, I mean, I live near a a town of about 50,000, so which is one of the biggest uh, settlements in Montana. But, you know, you go most directions from my house and uh, you'll be a long time, you know, an hour drive before you even hit a town of a thousand people. Um, but, you know, be that as it may, um, you know, this is kind of out there. You have this mixed pattern of settlement. Uh, so the Census Bureau declares the, the frontier closed in 1890 and Frederick Jackson Turner, who was probably the preeminent at least certainly by reputation, uh, late 19th century American historian uh, delivers a speech called The uh, Significance of the Frontier at the, uh, in American History at uh, the uh, the World's Fair, I believe it was, of all places in Chicago. Maybe it was a meeting of the American Historical Association that was in Chicago, kind of an important distinction. But it was right around then, right around the time of the Chicago World's Fair, he delivers this uh, kind of very influential um, speech, which he then gives into, turns into a book. And one of the things he says in it, and again, I, I'm translating or paraphrasing loosely, but he basically says, with the closing of the frontier, which informed all of our thinking about who we are as the people, the kind of first age of American settlement is over. And so then from right around then, you begin to get actually a, an even bigger increase in immigration. And that continues sort of, and it begins to make people uncomfortable until 1924, when the people who are just very uncomfortable with like the volume and difference of the level of immigration that had been coming, shut the door. And in 1924, we, we get these uh, very restrictive immigration acts, which now, you know, all right thinking people think are, are very terrible. I, I don't join that. I'm just saying that with some ironic distance. Um, 
And we move to a time of almost unprecedentedly low immigration and um, from kind of more from sort of old stock American um, eras. And we had that. And it's in that environment in the late 1950s that Kennedy writes this book um, and, uh, you know, begins to kind of build pressure to change our immigration law. And then in 1965, after Kennedy's assassination and partially sort of inspired by that, as so many of the great uh, society programs were, we get what's called the Heart Cellar Act, which essentially sets our modern immigration system and it begins to deviate pretty radically um, from anything that we've done before. Although there are some similarities to the late 19th century, early 20th century pattern. So that's a long, I basically summarized the entire essay for you, but, but it's a long way of saying we're to say that we are historically a nation of immigrants and therefore an attempt to seriously restrict or control the types of immigration that we're getting or the volume of immigration we're getting and that this is not part of the american experience it's an ahistorical view there have been times where we've been uh, an immigration nation for lack of a better term although we've never been greater than 15 percent immigrants which is about what we are right now um there are times where we've had very little immigration there's times where we've had settlement there are times where you had immigration, but it hasn't been as politically relevant as it is now. Um, and so we really have this mixed pattern. And so the question is not that somehow we betray our ideals by saying that uh, we are not going to be a nation of immigrants anymore. It's, it's what is good for America right now in 2021 or 2022, excuse me. And, and you know, what I would argue is um, the volume and diversity of the immigration we have right now is very bad for our national coherence as a national culture, um, it, that, which has nothing to do. I mean, the, there's a separate discussion that one could have about like whether you know they're sending their best, as Trump said. But I think, irrespective of this, um, unity of all types, not in a fully efficient sense, but a a, a, a bias toward unity rather than diversity uh, in a country, especially on something so visible as ethnicity, but you could say the same thing about religion or anything else, is something that leads to a stable and cohesive society. And when you have diversity, you begin to get into a lot of zero-sum games between various groups competing for slices of the pie. And I think that that is uh, a very dangerous uh, sort of phenomenon. And I unfortunately think that is where we are right now. I think it explains not all, but a lot of um, some of the fractiousness that we've recently had in our society because irrespective of our um, ideological commitments, what do I have in common with Ilhan Omar, for example, by background? Nothing. Uh, I mean, she comes from a radically, radically different world background set of assumptions uh, uh, than I do. Um, so that's, you know, that's that's a long winded way of kind of making my case for a more restricted um, immigration and greater Americanization, uh, which had been at least when we had high immigration in the past, that had been a hallmark of what we did. And of course, now, you know, to say Americanization or assimilation, uh, those are very dirty words among all right thinking people. Yeah, I think I do want to get into uh, those disagreements that I think we have later on. But I think I actually want to draw out something 
very important in your distinction between settler and immigrant that I think I agree with here. Uh, and that I think a lot of people missed. I think there were like, I don't know. I think this is one of those scenarios where people weren't kind of like trying very hard to steel man uh, the opposing case. Right. But the thing that really jumped to mind for me when I was reading that essay was like uh, Peter Thiel's book Zero to One. Right. He draws a distinction between um, people who kind of create create a new idea and people who basically like optimize, um, optimize on the margins on that idea. Sure. Right. When it comes to when it comes to like tech or when it comes to startups. And to me, that people people will say like, okay, what's the, what's the actual difference between a settler versus an immigrant, right? Isn't this just like a linguistic trick, right? And to me, right, that, that's kind of where you draw the distinction. Maybe this is a little bit of a kind of modern, modern uh, re-envisioning or modern analogy of it, right? But that distinction, that distinction is one that, I, at least to me, jumped out as like being quite significant. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think it's, it's huge. Yeah, you did. You did make the point. Right. Yeah. point. right. And it's not again. Yeah. We we've been so brainwashed. And again, I say. I mean, you can brainwash people in good ways. I'm not. I'm not anti brainwashing here. Okay. So, <laughs> you know, society exists, and that's a good thing. I want. I want. I want my kids to be brainwashed in the right way. Um, so, but but we we have been we've been brainwashed by this narrative on immigration and a nation of immigrants. And my point is that this is a it's it's a modern invention. It's not how the universal story of how we always were and always have been. Yeah, I guess like the big question here, right, is, and I'm sure you uh, have very kind of high resolution thinking on this as well, right? What is what is that fundamental difference, right? What what is like the change in dynamics between like a settler and an immigrant, right? Or like a zero to one to yeah. where it's like yeah. one to infinity, right? Right. Well, I mean, I think, right. You know, you're the immigrant is joining the settled society. And in theory, what the immigrant should be doing is to attempt as much as possible to conform themselves to uh, the mores of that society that they, um, are joining. And of course, I'm not, I don't want to give a simplistic and again, historically false notion that we were perfect at this in the past. I mean, um, ethnic enclaves and communities and religious enclaves and communities, you can certainly go back to the, the great peaks and waves of immigration and you can find plenty of that that went on. So this is not some new phenomenon and I don't want to suggest in any way some sort of simplistic oh, new immigrants bad and old immigrants were good and, you know, new immigrants don't want to be Americans and, and old immigrants did. I mean, I think that's that's a facially false assertion. Um, but having said that, with all those things going on, there was a strong expectation that certainly to join the top tiers of the society in the past, you did have to kind of drink the Kool-Aid. I mean, you had to, you had to like buy into the, the broader American project um, to kind of cast off some of those other allegiances, et cetera. Now that is no longer true. Um, that is less the fault of the immigrants than it is, you know, of kind of the, the failure of leftist hegemony generally in its thinking about the country, but it exists. Another important component that I think is very different is these previous immigrants 
we're coming into a world, you know, in pre the mid 20th century where there was effectively almost no welfare state. So you either kind of made it on your own or you didn't make it. And a lot of them did not make it. I mean, huge percentage of them at different times turned back. Whereas now, uh, you know, you come here illegally and you go right on Ron DeSantis's private jet to Martha's Vineyard. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, it's, it's just a very different um, set of, of, we have a very set of a different set of expectations that we, we give um, have and a very different set of things that we have on offer. And my very narrow, you know, unapologetically nationalist view is like, what we should do in immigration is what is good for America, period. And what is in the interest of Americans, period. And like, you know, I'm not as concerned about, you know, what people who are not Americans, who are not part of our project, at least yet, you know, like, that's nice. Like, but, you know, I'm going to do what's good for this country. So that's, that's my view. Yeah. So is your, this is actually something I'm not sure about. Is your critique primarily, uh, and there are kind of like a lot of people with different opinions on these as well, right? Is your critique primarily like culture-based or like economics-based, right? Or both? It's, it's both. I mean, I think culture is more important than economics. I guess that's maybe one reason I'd sort of consider myself a conservative. I mean, I think that you can... And there's classic examples of this in wars and in many other times. I mean, you can go through very dire straits economically if you have a lot of cultural cohesion um, around whatever national project you have. You know, arguably you're seeing this in Ukraine right now. I mean, it's not just in economics, but, but certainly they're struggling through that. But they have a strong sense of a national identity of a peoplehood. I mean, again, maybe not universally in some of the eastern parts, but in some of the other parts for sure. Um, and so I'm not a person who's an economic fundamentalist. I think culture does come first. So that's part of my critique, but yeah, the economics isn't as great, um, either in a lot of cases, because we're bringing in people with mismatched skills again. Um, when in the early 20th century, late 19th century, I mean, we were the rising industrial power. We were looking for tons of folks who maybe didn't have a lot of skills, but to do factory work. Um, which was a lot brutal. Now, maybe we'll be sure enough that th- this will become back on the table at some point, but that's not where we are now. Um, you know, having said all this, I mean, you know, having made my strong case against it, I am not for zero immigration for the same sort of um, selfish nationalist reasons, if I can be slightly self-deprecating, that I am for um uh, dramatically limiting immigration, I still want us to go out and get the truly best and brightest and most talented people from everywhere and get them to be on Team America. I mean, I think that is in our national interests. Um, but I think we've gone much further down the talent stack in that regard, even in a lot of our quote unquote high skill immigration than a lot of the proponents like to acknowledge. Uh what do you mean there? And also, yeah, let's just go there first. Let's talk about like high skilled immigration. What's what's the case against high skilled immigration? Well, so I mean, the question is, uh, if it's truly high skilled, I mean, still, I mean, there are probably limits to the volume. And I could make some slightly disingenuous arguments, although they're true, um, that really high skilled immigration from certain types of countries tends to deprive a lot of developing countries of their most talented people. 
but you know at the end of the day like that's not my real motivation so i'm not going to claim that it is but it's yeah <laughs> but if you're... So to me i hear that and think like you know maybe some countries you know like russia china you know maybe that's a good thing yeah but, but, I mean, sorry you know, if you if you claim to be about you know the great welfare of all the people in the world i think uh it's a fair critique which is why i, I think it's fair for me to mention it even though it's not my prime motivator um I mean, this gets a little bit technical and you can go read things from uh, the Center for Immigration Studies, which is actually a really good think tank, despite uh, being uh, designated by our friends at the Southern Poverty Law Center as a hate group, uh, which is, I mean, such a joke. If you know Mark Krikorian, who runs it, is a super sweet, super, super sweet, uh, you know, guy who would never, uh, you know, ex ex expand on hate to anybody. Yeah, I think very little portion, very little of my audience. Yeah. Um, treats the Southern Poverty <laughs> Law Center okay. as anything other than well, a democratic I, just, I, I, uh, I always feel the need to now. give a hate disclaimer, you know, lest I be accused of leading the youth of our country astray. But, um, you know, they've done a lot of very detailed work on this, but, uh, you know, and I, I would be loath to kind of mis-summarize it. But, but basically, if you look at a lot of the H-1B stuff, for example, these are not really, you know, the true top engineers, right? They're people who can displace American engineers and work for cheaper. And uh, by the way, their visa is basically tethered to their current employer, so they don't complain. Um, so, you know, I'm pretty, I'm with a pretty jaundiced eye toward that. Plus, I think there's, it, it's happened in such volume that you get these, um, you know, broad cultural enclaves that again, you know, sort of work against the broader assimilatory project. Um, but, um, you know, so, so I, that's, that's, I mean, the basic argument, again, that you can read the, the details of it a lot. I mean, there's, there's some ways in which H1B in particular has been used, you know, which is supposed to bring in really talented tech workers. That is just an absolute scam. I mean, there's no question. It's a complete scam. If you read about it, um, there are other ways that are sort of more edge cases. Um, but, uh, you know, they're still not great. So, you know, my, my, my general view is like, if you won the Westinghouse talent search or the, you know, foreign equivalent, or even anything close to that, I would love to stamp your visa and have you come to the United States. Um, but, you know, if you're just kind of displacing a mid-level person here, I think you need to look at it more holistically. And right now the holistic case for lots more immigration to me is not a strong one. Yeah, so I kind of have like frontline, I mean, I've worked in tech as well. I kind of have frontline experience with both the kind of H-1B visa economy and the like student visa economy. Yeah. And I, I do kind of, I agree with you on the factual point that it is like, let's say like greatly exaggerated, right? But I don't think I necessarily agree that the result is kind of like economically net negative. Uh, so, so here's what I mean, yeah. right? So when it comes to like the, the average, I think the average H-1B visa is not like someone who is, you know, inventing a new chemical sure. or, right. It's not like, it, it's not like Catalin Caraco, yeah. right? That's not the average H-1B visa recipient, but the average H-1B visa recipient is probably closer to like someone who is just like putting together an API, right? Yeah. And for like the audience, that's basically someone who is like, um, relabeling or packaging or basically kind of like putting, making sure like two pieces of software can like reliably call each other. Sure. Right? 
Uh, and so you're, this is like semi-rote work that just requires a kind of basic knowledge sure. of the fundamentals, right? Right. Uh, on the, but at the same time, right, even if their skill is kind of less than is advertised, yeah, I'm not sure that adding them to the economy is necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. Because in, at the end, many tech companies are still constrained, right? They're, sure. they're, and like, I, I do think this like marginally, uh, at least in the short term, decreases wages for some types of people who would have the same jobs. Yeah. But in the long run, right, because it is still constrained, like there are tech, there's like a marginal tech company that can't start because it can't hire enough mid-level talent. Yeah. Right. In the end, that because that marginal tech company is then able to succeed, I'm still kind of optimistic on that. Well, so, so like, why am I, why am I wrong, basically? Yeah, so here's point? where the economic, you know, sort of blends into the cultural. And again, I, I want to put my cards, you know, very much on the table, even if folks may not agree with all of them. But, um, you know, the problem then becomes with enough volume. And I saw this because I lived in Palo Alto for many years when I was at uh, the mm, Yeah. Um, you get like, and again, you know, further disclosure. Uh, so I lived in India previously. Uh, so I know a lot about that country, and that is, of course, the the home of um, a great many H-1B folks. In fact, I think the predominant number of them. Um, but like, what you end up kind of getting with mass H-1B then is a bunch of like really privileged, high-caste Brahmins yelling at me about how racist I am, when in fact they're coming from <laughs> a country where I've seen firsthand. I mean, there is no kind. I've been all over the world, and, and I haven't lived all over the world, but I've you know lived in India, spent years. In other places, you know, there is there is. I'm sad to say, um, you know, no place I've been where kind of like the upper class just grinds down the common people in more misery than what I, you know, observed in India. So, like, I'm not really in the mood for that type of lecture about from a. By the way, also a pretty economically well situated group then at this point um, because they are you know pretty skilled. Um, most of the folks. Yeah, they're one of the highest earning groups in uh, in America, I think. Yeah, no, they're the highest earning group in America about how American society is fundamentally racist. And I'm going to join in with the Black Lives Matter folks to protest against whiteness. Um, so like, you know, again, I'm not, I'm not trying to hide the ball here. I'm not claiming it's just an economic argument. I'm saying the cultural problems with mass immigration of that type at that level are not insignificant. I mean, they're negative for me and my family. Um, and I think they're negative for the country. And now we can ignore that because that negative externality, if the they're high enough on the talent stack that um, you know they just are creating so much value in other ways. But if they're kind of marginally positive on the talent stack in the way that you've described, and I think that probably does describe a lot of folks on H-1Bs, then some of these other arguments are totally fair game. And I, you know, that's why I make them. <laughs> uh, I see. Yeah, I, I think I, I kind of agree with you, at least in in some aspect here, where it just is true that the that like the average immigrant uh, is more left wing yeah. than the average um than the average American. Yeah. But I kind of strangely see this as a problem of over assimilation oh, so rather the, than the under values of the uh, you know white white uh, white liberals. Yeah, so so like I think 
we talked about this in private as well. And there was this other podcast with Richard Hanania and Amy Wax where they get into this, right? Like, it, it, the problem isn't really that, like, an immigrant is coming here and sticking to, like, their values in their home countries. If anything, they'd be, like, a lot more kind of, like, based. They'd <laughs> be a lot more socially yeah, yeah, conservative, yeah. that's for sure, right? It, it's more like there is this, like, pre-fit kind of... Um, there is this pre-fit, like, like you said, elite culture that is very attractive yeah, uh, and very kind of, like, personally convenient. And there's there's sort of, like, too much assimilation no, in no, this of, way. Of right? course, it, you know, it's it's like Baizua, if you're yeah. familiar with that Chinese term, right? Like, they're, they're becoming white left. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm very, like... In none of this, and I, you know, I even mentioned this, I think at the end of my, my big essay, you know, like with the rarest exceptions, I'm not bashing the immigrants for this, right? Like if I were situated in the way that most of these folks were, even in like coming from pretty nice places, I would probably be going pretty hard in extremists to get to the US too. And they may have totally good intentions and they may well contribute a lot once they get here. But the question is on net, what is... Um, useful for the U.S. And I think it is totally plausible what you just said, that in fact, they are over-assimilating into our horrible, dominant, uh, Baizwa culture. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, really, it's just the fault of, of those uh, Baizwa. But it doesn't change the reality of what functionally happens on the ground. And what happens on the ground is the very bad people who are setting our cultural trends are strengthened by the presence of mass amounts of this type of immigration. So, you know, it's like, it's, you know, neither neither here nor there ultimately at the end of the day for me. Yeah, what's interesting is that I don't think that this is, uh, that this is inevitable, right? For example, in Canada, in Canada, Chinese and Indian immigrants are a lot more, a lot more swing, right? Yes. They're, they're like actually like the focal like swing swing districts in Canada yeah. and like the Ontario suburbs. And so you have the situation where it, it like kind of is possible. Yeah. Right? And we're kind of seeing that it's very weird or like, it's not weird at all. It's kind of intuitive actually. Now that I think about it, yeah. right? Like the, like the, the Chinese immigrants in San Francisco are like the most right-wing people in San Francisco. Yeah. They're just, it, it's just that it's San yeah. Francisco. Yeah. Right. So like the people who, who recall, like it, it's like these like, uh, elderly like Chinese women who are who are doing like the the Chase of Budi no, no, uh, recall no, campaign. Yeah, they're certainly right. not as crazy as the white it's people. It's just that, like, yeah, for sure. No, there's no question. Um, you know, yeah, yeah it's just like, that San Francisco always, as a culture. I'm always right? willing Sorry, to um, revisit this, as we should, all should do. This has been the theme of the conversation, based on uh, new evidence that emerges. But like right now, I'm not seeing that here, which is the country I'm most concerned with. And until I really see that here, and until I sort of see that we've kind of unified more here, I'm just going to be against it, um, you know, against our current immigration policies as not um, uh, working. And again, I've said and written this before that, uh, you know, my my happiest version of where we are uh, likely, you know, where we could be in the U.S. in 100 years is a country of a lot of uh, tan colored people with a fondness for George Washington. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I hope that we get there because I think every other um, 
possibility is less attractive and involves a lot of uh, interethnic conflict in really unpleasant ways. Um, but I don't have a great deal of confidence that that's where we're headed. Um, and so because of that, you know, I really want to hit the pause button uh, in the same way that we did, you know, for 40 years. And I think we kind of reconstituted an American identity um, at that time that that became very strong and unified um, in a lot of ways. And I think before we continue to open up the floodgates uh, to immigration at a mass level, um, you know, we need to uh, kind of engage in that project again. What do you think of the changing Hispanic vote? Well, that's interesting, right? It's, it's, it's similarly, I mean, you can sort of argue it's a sort of assimilatory project where they're uh, assimilating to the values and mores of the uh, white working class, which is increasingly Republican. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's encouraging as a development. I mean, I think if anything, you know, ironically, the the rights kind of status is so low that honestly our best bet to kind of stop some of this immigration insanity is that um, the left no longer perceives that it will be in their electoral interest uh, because these crazy people are all voting Republican. Um, So again, you know, it's encouraging um, and it's not totally stunning to me. And again, you know, if you've spent time down at the border and I've done that on a huge amount of time, but I've spent some, it's, you know, if you know the sorts of people who live down there, it's not surprising. I mean, they're, they are pretty culturally conservative people. They're also, as we <laughs> saw, you know, this Martha's Vineyard thing was so preposterous, right? Like how Martha's Vineyard. Can I explain that for the audience? The, so in Martha's Vineyard, you know, you had yeah. these 50 illegal immigrants flown there and it was like the apocalypse and they were gone within 36 hours. Whereas in Eagle Pass, Texas, you know, these communities, which are not wealthy communities like Martha's Vineyard, are being hit by thousands sometimes in a single day of illegal immigrants. Um, and so, uh, you know, they, they definitely see the downside. And of course, also in many cases, they are working in occupations in which illegals may be competing for their labor and driving down the cost. And again, we, we focused on skilled immigration because I think that's the harder we were trying to steel man it as i interpreted the conversation uh, i think that's the harder yeah. case to make even though i'm very comfortable making it but um you know there's a reason why cesar chavez was very strongly opposed to illegal immigration and that's because he understood that it it dramatically drove down the wages for his workers it wasn't that he hated mexican americans uh, and i say that you know <laughs> fully tongue in cheek since he's obviously a great uh, hero in the mexican american community um but yeah, that's that's basically the, uh, the the nuts and bolts of it. Even with low skilled immigration, I'm not quite sure that's the case, at least in the current economy, because like, look, we're facing like a labor shortage, right? I mean, we can we can kind of get back to this. It is the kind of like it is the kind of like path dependent case yeah. that I think is true of most economic policies, but. Um, I, I do want to kind of continue on the cultural point because the, I, I think that's like very interesting and that's kind of very like hot to the touch right now. Right. And, and to like, I think like a good, this is something that I promised to put out and haven't because I'm just not sure if I'll be able to do a good job of it. But I think like a truly like comprehensive realist analysis of the uh, Martha's Vineyard uh 
scandal event, I don't know, yeah. um, tactic uh, by Ron DeSantis would be like just really il- illustrative of our current kind of like political dynamic. Yeah. Because like there's so many layers to this, right? The the first layer is kind of like, um, actually, I do want to give more details to the audience, basically. So uh, there's, I think there were basically uh, illegal immigrants who, or I'm not sure because there, there are like people, there are like left wing re- reporters who said they're not actually illegal immigrants. Well, and then I mean, if we want to get if we want yeah. to get deeply factual about like who these people again, I haven't personally interviewed them, but but according to asylum and immigration law, you know, they are almost universally people who have illegitimate claims of asylum who are economic migrants. A legitimate claim of asylum, you have to give it basically the first country you can reach that's not your country. Which is not U.S. If you're in Venezuela, you know it's Colombia, it's you know Mexico, it's you know somewhere in Central America. Um, you know, again, and I, I don't want to beat up on these people, right? Like, I get why they're coming here. Yeah. I get that they're. I think you're, you're. I think you're kind of underestimating my audience here and how kind of like clear filled they are. Yeah, no, I'm sure, right? but I mean, I, but, but, I, but, give, like, but I'm not. I mean, yeah. I've been pretty blunt, right? Like, I'm not saying it so that ooh, you know, he's not a bad guy. No, I don't care. Like, people want to think I'm a bad guy. That's fine. But I, I mean, it's actually, my view. So it's important for me to say, like, I don't think that they're bad people for wanting to be here, but that doesn't mean that I think that they should be here. Um, and, you know, the, the economic analysis and, and the labor shortage, I mean, I think that's kind of interesting, but there's a lot of other ways to um, get around that, A, including, you know, raising wages, which, you know, obviously we've done to a degree. But I think really part of it was just the COVID and, uh, you know, disastrous COVID policy shock to the system plus the ukraine war and the way that we misplayed that i mean we have a bunch of shocks to the system that i think over time we can equivalent you know reach an equilibrium yeah. uh, before we get to kind of offset though i do want to talk about the the political dynamics okay. of the martha's vineyard thing because it's so interesting to me because basically you have the scenario where uh yeah basically so desantis uh has uh, these people who I think were going to Texas, but they crossed over in Florida. I mean, like we can look at the factual details. Yeah. Um, they're, they're almost kind of like not too important to the actual point, but he gives them uh, plane tickets to uh, Martha's Vineyard, which is this very left-wing sort of elite, yeah. very property prices uh, area. Uh, and then... So, and then uh, in Massachusetts, and then the I think like the Republican, but kind of like weird, like moderate, um, quote, quote, unquote, like moderate <laughs> to our discussion earlier, right? Republican uh, who who calls the National Guard, uh, and, and the Democrats in the area I think are pro it, and then they they so they call the National Guard, they move them to I think a military base, and. <laughs> to me, like what's so interesting is that there's like very there's like many layers of like bluffs being called here, right? So the initial the initial kind of uh, Ron DeSantis's position is that okay, there are these serious um, challenges that are being faced in uh, in these border towns, and so we should show we should show the liberals. Um, how how challenging it is to have to deal with this basically like crisis response, and then there's another layer of it where like immigration is just an incredibly like wedge issue for Democrats. A lot of Democrats are actually anti-immigration. Yeah. So you have this 
scenario uh, where like they have to just like lower the sale. They have to like quote unquote solve it, right? Otherwise, there'll just be more attention focused on immigration, and you'll get a lot of dem- or like not a lot, but like in terms of elections, right? In terms of like the marginal voter, a significant amount of people who are like push towards the Republicans or decide to vote more Republican due to this. Yeah. And then there's another layer of that where there's like the Streisand effect where because they took such a harsh hand at this, there's like now this Republican attack that opens up or like not even attack, but basically I saw a lot of people posting like, I don't know, you could could say this was an attack or this was a kind of like political strategy of saying, wow, they did a great job. We should now apply the exact same thing that they did with calling in the National Guard to... Uh, Texas into the border states. And this was just like this very interesting kind of political experiment with like basically all of these, um, all of these myths or all of these self-deceptions uh, on, on, from, I think both parties being like, being like really put to the test. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for sure. I mean, it's, it's a comp, the politics of it are, are complicated, uh, you know, and I think both sides kind of maybe felt like they, or, or all of the sides maybe felt like they declared victory and maybe underestimated how they looked to uh, the other folks. But, you know, I've definitely been a fan of intensifying. I mean, every single one of my view of these, you know, is uh, like uh, sanctuary cities and whatnot. You know, they should just be uh, sanctuary cities and states should just be getting everybody. So, you know, my only criticism of DeSantis is that he only sent one plane load and he should have sent 50. Um, uh, maybe not to Martha Vineyard because that's actually maybe more expensive. But he, he, you know, Abbott did a good job of sending a lot more buses, uh, and I think you know they should all just every single little fashionable like Malibu, all those guys should just be getting bus after bus so that they have a trivial amount of the consequences of the policies that they claim they support. So, right. This is interesting too, right? So Governor Greg Abbott of Texas, he's been doing this for quite a while. Yeah. And then DeSantis does it once and then all of the media attention is there. Yeah. Well, <laughs> really kind of demonizing him. So they have to, the media has to see whether they can use this against him. Plus, you know, Martha's Vineyard is more right. personal, right? Like those immigrants can disappear into New York City or they're maybe going to a part of New York City that's not the Upper East Side. Um, but in Martha's Vineyard, that's like you're assaulting our privileged space. Tucker Carlson, actually, you know, who by his cultural background knows something about that world, uh, you know, he actually had a very good monologue on this. I mean, he really understood the the particular way in which the the vi- the personal violation these people felt, you know, at, at having these immigrants uh, come to Martha's Vineyard, um, which is of course preposterous, right? But like that's how they view it well i i'm sort of uh I, I probably need to wind up here pretty soon but is there uh is there anything else that uh, we should talk about yeah oh darn yeah i i kind of want to go pretty deep on the political dynamics of this especially uh yeah especially since i can make sure i'm getting the, the kind of like steel man of the conservative position here but I don't know. Yeah. If you're running low on time, I definitely want to respect that. Well, we, we, can, we, can, do, we can, we can do um, a little bit more on, on, on it. It's, it's fine. I'm not, nobody's going to come out and shoot me. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I just, I think, you know, I, I again, I, I'm not representing, you know, I'm, I'm definitely on the right, even among conservatives on this issue. Although I should say more, 
I'm on the right of conservative policy elites. I'm not on the right of conservative voters. If anything, my view, which would still admit, you know, the best and the brightest folks uh, is, is still to the, the left of plenty of people who are just like 100% immigration moratorium now. Um, you know, I certainly think we should also be deporting everybody who's here illegally. And again, you would get a lot. I mean, if we actually followed the law, a lot of these problems would resolve themselves because people are only coming because they know that we're not actually going to enforce our laws and there's not really any consequences for them to come here illegally. So, um, you know. Yeah, and on the kind of like contrapositive side, right? The legal immigration system is also like kind of terrible. Yeah, oh, yeah, it is. No, no, no. Like, and we, could, yeah. we could have a, a similar number that was much more functional. I mean, you know, just get rid of the diversity visa alone. I mean, it amazes me that Democrats can't even take easy W's like that. I mean, the diversity visa in 2022 serves absolutely zero valid purpose for anybody. And they could get. Is that the one where, like, you you don't want too many country, uh, too many immigrants from like the same countries, yeah. which are like half the world's population? Yeah, I mean, we literally just like picked this. This was a an artifact. I think was it the nineteen ninety Immigration Act? I can't remember. Maybe even gone back to Hart Seller in sixty five. But um, uh, you know, like, yeah, it was. It's fifty thousand visas a year, fifty to sixty thousand for countries where we don't have a lot of people from. Um, so, you know, yeah, this isn't just like a right wing thing, right? Alex Schopp, um, who is the kind of like center left policy thinker, like he also really dislikes the country caps. Yeah, I, I think this is like definitely an easy win. Yeah, so, but they can't, uh, I don't know if it's a win for Democrats or for answer. Republicans, but it's a win. Yeah, they can't take us for an answer. <laughs> well, I mean, whatever. They're, they're, the, the consequences of the insanity of our immigration policy are going to become evident. I mean, they've already become evident, but they're going to become unavoidable for even the people who claim to support it uh, sooner rather than later. And so I will accept their apologies in advance. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, actually I'm going to decline them at the time that they need to. But the, to me, it's just, been, it's been a huge fiasco in terms of our national interest. And, you know, I, that that's just the national interest of the United States is just the lens that I view this stuff through. So that's what it comes down to. Yeah, I do want to, I want to ask about uh, Godel Escherbach, which you mentioned uh, okay. earlier. Uh, yeah, we can, we can this is how I want to end this. Subject. Yeah, and then one, and then uh, the last question of the show, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but let's talk about Godel Escherbach, uh, Godel Escherbach first. Yeah. Uh, so first of all, just for the viewers, what is that book? Wow. Uh, well, the, the subtitle is A Metaphorical Fugue on Minds and Machines. Uh, in the spirit of Lewis Carroll. So that would be um, the, the literal thing. But it, it was a book that was written in 1979 uh, that won the Pulitzer Prize by a totally unknown author uh, at the time named Douglas Hofstetter, whose uh, father, Robert Hofstetter, had been a Nobel Prize winning physicist at Stanford. And he, I mean, what he, I mean, he's talked about how um, the book is misinterpreted Um and uh, people didn't totally get it. I think this is also one of these cases where you can't totally take the author completely at their word as having the definitive interpretation of the book. But what he, you know, what the book is really about, according to him, is sort of how intelligence emerges from like this kind of set of heuristics and rules, how, how intelligence becomes emergent. Um, you know, but he really dives in in a very playful way to looking at, um, how creativity emerges in different um, 
substrates by looking and comparing uh, the logician Kurt Gödel, um, uh, who kind of proved things about uh, completeness and consistency in mathematics that you could explain very well, and me, even after reading the book, could not. Um, uh, M.C. Escher, the uh, Dutch graphic artist, and uh, Johann Sebastian Bach, the composer. But he goes into Zen Buddhism and all sorts of other things. And uh, if you have a certain type of mind that's like a little bit autistic and creative and really into brilliant wordplay and weird math. Many such people in my audience. Yeah, I mean, this was a huge cult book. That, I mean, it was more than a cult book because it was a big national bestseller, but but it had an enormous, I mean, it would be for a, a, a large number of really bright people, it would be like this book changed my life more than any other. And certainly I think that was, uh, which without classifying myself in that way, uh, at least at the time that I read it, it certainly did. It was one of the reasons I got into um, technology because he made these issues seem really interesting. Interestingly enough, um, the first ever sale on amazon.com was uh, Douglas Hofstetter's book, not this one, but Fluid Concepts and Creative Analogies, uh, Fundamental Mechanisms of, of Human Thought, I believe it was. Um, I subsequently, of course, bonded a little bit with Hofstetter because I, I wrote him as a college student, letting him know how much I'd appreciated uh, his book. He's, he's, a, he's a, a total shit lib, uh, but you know, I love, love, love his book anyway. Um, uh, and it's really, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty amazing uh, book and it's a sort of book where um, I would highly recommend it probably to the sorts of people who listen to your podcast. If you get a hundred pages into it and are like, what is this nonsense? Uh, it's okay to put it down. It's not going to get better for you than that. <laughs> uh, but uh, if you really are like, whoa, this is kind of cool, then, uh, you know, take it all the way through. It's a it's a demanding read, but a really, a really great one. Yeah, that the book, I, I think, is one of those books where you get the sentiment that, like, I don't know if this is legit, but this is kind of like, realer than real you know yeah this is like a kind of like crazy crazy thing about the world uh and you know definitely definitely not easily proven false either uh, yeah yeah well he's and i didn't know i didn't he's exploring a lot of different concepts and introducing them to you in some very playful and interconnected ways there's a lot of recursion there's a lot of self-reference um you know, and again, I think to a certain type of intellect, it just is very appealing. And I can say, you know, when he came to Stanford to give a lecture, um, when I was there, it was like groupieville. You know, you fill up this gigantic auditorium and a bunch of really smart people, including like tech gazillionaires, were like, you know, hanging in the back row seats to try to meet him. So he definitely he had a big impact on a lot of people who went on to have certainly more influence on the world than, than I've had. But, uh, uh, you know, he's definitely uh, been an influential person and, and the book is, is a really great book to read. Yeah, maybe I can put it this way to my audience. He's kind of like the Scott Alexander of his day. Uh, but yeah, but I'm not going to give Scott <laughs> Alexander that much credit. I mean, not that I have a, uh, any, but he's, he's, he's operating at an intellectual level a little higher than then Scott, bless his heart, as we would say, back where I'm from. Uh, it's, it's not that not that Scott is not a bright and capable guy, but but uh, but Hofstetter's brain is working at a different level. And and uh, you know, if you get one of his other books like Metamagical Themas, you know, his collection of 
columns in Scientific American before that just turned into a total woke disaster of a magazine. But uh, I mean, he's just a remarkably fertile and, and interesting intellect. Well, we're nearing the end of the time constraint. We're nearing the end of the podcast. So I'll ask you the last question of the show. Everyone gets this one. Okay. Uh, what is something that is too much chaos and needs more order and something that has too much order and needs more chaos and preferably <laughs> something we haven't talked about yet. Oh, okay. Because there That's are a lot of things we talked about yet that fall in that category. Uh, what needs uh, a thing that has chaos and needs more order? Let me do order and needs more chaos. Um, academia has too much order and needs huge amounts of chaos and disruption. Uh, yeah, I mean, oh, yeah. It's, it's so... That might be the most popular answer on the show. Oh, really? That's I'm sorry. Gone. You know, it's... It, but it's no, it's fine. It's fine. Who loves ideas, you know? Um, you know, like my dad had some quote he gave me once. My dad is an academic research scientist, uh, retired now. But, you know, he said something like, you know, I, you, again, not, not original with him, but I, I went in with sci to science because I, you know, crave truth and certainty and beauty, blah, blah, blah. He says, this is a little bit like becoming an archbishop in order to meet women. Um, and, yeah, and I think that's just broadly now for academics. I mean, it's just, it's really gotten to the point where it's almost a counter indicator, particularly for young people. I mean, you have to, you have to prove to me that you're not just a total tool of the system, totally intellectually uninteresting. And I mean, basically just a dweeb, like that's my assumption whenever I meet somebody <laughs> younger than 40 who's in academia and in no way am i saying that that um every academic young academic falls into that class but it's just it's gotten so bad that that should be everybody's default is that these are just low-level regime apparatchiks without an ability to think independently at all um uh let's see what what has um chaos that needs more order that is not our country's immigration system which was immediately uh <laughs> the thing that i um thought of um yeah oh gosh um what is really just totally chaotic um okay i'll give you one it's this is it's a little bit of a cheat but it's i think correct which is the federal bureaucracy, which is another huge hobby horse of mine, having previously managed 10,000 people in the federal bureaucracy for a little while. Um, Wait, this is the chaos one? Yeah, it's totally chaotic. Oh, interesting. Um, there's no clear lines of authority. Um, now, I mean, it's, it's in some ways chaotic because it serves the purpose of the bureaucracy for there to not be clear lines of accountability, because then you can't make them do anything that they don't want to do which is exactly what they um, they want, especially if you're a Republican in office. And again, you know, again, it's not quite chaos, so it's sort of cheating, but it's sort of managed lack of order or order or, or pseudo order. Um, so, you know, there's all sorts of different um, requirements that are put on you legally that are very chaotic um, that ensure that in fact, like, I mean, the, the net result of all of it is that we can't have, this is my laugh at the left talking about our democracy. I mean, we can't actually have a democracy because, or even, even in the, the sort of broadest, most normy sense of that term, because the, the permanent bureaucracy through chaos 
sort of manages to run everything. And if Republicans win, they have all sorts of ways of invoking, you know, these sorts of uh, uh, different rules within the system um, that, um, uh, you know, kind of thwart your rule. It didn't matter that I was appointed by the president. I still don't have authority. So when I say they mean more order, what it, ne- what it means is when Donald Trump appoints me to a position at the Department of Interior at a senior level, I need to be able to go hire and fire people really easily. And I need to know that when I give a command acting on the delegated authority of the president of the United States, that the bureaucracy is in a very orderly way going to snap to it and execute that command. And of course, uh, like any you know, properly functioning bureaucracy, I'm happy to get uh, advice or counsel or whatever, or even to hear dissenting views, but ultimately they're working in an orderly way on our behalf rather than using their own managed chaos to thwart democratic accountability. So that's what I'll give for uh, where is too chaotic. Right. Yeah. I think a lot of the time that that's also a pretty common answer that pops up in terms of having too much order and yeah. needing more chaos. Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> the, the, the people, maybe yeah, that actually manage too. the bureaucracy. Yeah. I'm not sure that they have. I mean, mm, right. but it's, but it's fine. Yeah, like, it just you know, I acknowledge that my, I'm giving a very particular definition of chaos here because I'm trying to, to, you know, answer your question. One, one could see it as an excess of order, but I do not see it as order. I see it as carefully managed chaos that thwarts what an orderly bureaucracy that took top-down command would look like. Yeah, now that I think about it, we, we talk surprisingly little about federal bureaucracies for for the amount of time we spent talking about federal bureaucracies before. Yeah. Maybe I'll have to have you on again. But uh, yeah, I'll respect your time, not go on to another three-hour podcast after this one on federal bureaucracies. <laughs> well, we could do it. Uh, and thanks for, yeah, yeah, thanks for coming fun. on thanks, the show. Thanks for having me. That was my interview with Jeremy Carl. If you want to help the show, just like I said up top, then you can subscribe, you can share, and you can let us know who you want to have on the show in the future by either leaving a comment on our Substack or leaving a five-star review. As always, we'll have a wonderful show for you next week, and you can catch that by making sure that you subscribe. Until next time.